Stop singing that. You've been singing that for a week. It's the toothbrush song from Why Don't You Play in Hell. You've been singing that for a week. Why? Why is, is that so stuck in your head? I think it's partially because I'm completely incapable of recreating the Japanese lyrics from it, but the song is invasive. It's inside me, Richard. I, get, I, it, get it out. I don't care. Get if it you out. sing it one more time, if you sing it one more time, I have no result but the worst recourse in the world. If you sing it one more time, don't, get don't. I you, see you. No. Demon. Okay, that's it. I know a song that'll get on your nerves, get on your nerves, get on your nerves. I know a song that'll get on your nerves, get on your nerves, get on your nerves. Make it stop! There's only one way to make it stop. Make it stop! How do I stop it, Richard? You know the cure. I know a song that'll get on your nerves, get on your nerves. Beer? Stopped. Would you like a Sapporo? Ah. To Digital Noise episode Moonerman. <laughs> we really should check in advance one day, shouldn't we? I get a lot of fun out of not remembering, personally. I don't know why, but really, we are. I in, get a lot of fun out of not remembering the night before sometimes. We're like a well past the 50 mark into the 60s, maybe even I the 70s. I think we're up in the 80s by now. Are we in the 80s I think already? We're in the 80s. I think, Good I think Lord. Yes. We might have to do something special for our 100th episode. I don't know what, but. What, like actually watch the films? <gasps> oh, secrets out. No, secrets out. no. Unfortunately, I have no life because that's all I do is watch the films oh god uh and like or maybe even do a show with with all three of us on it again dear god that's been a while yeah well not that long we did one uh with uh the best of oh yeah yeah somebody just asked me why don't y'all do a show together well honestly one of the reasons we have multiple members is so we so we don't have we have weeks off (laughs) yeah because there's so many movies we watch for you guys so we can tell you this one's good this one's bad this one's meh 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 uh, Why but, do you think we did the lightning round on the last one? So it's because it was impossible to get everything done. Ridiculous stack of films that for last week and this week as well. Yes. We have a bunch of stuff. Although Brian's more fond of the lightning round than I am. The so lightning round. <laughs> we might just plug ahead, yeah. as it were. Uh, but a lot of good stuff this this week. A lot of bad stuff this week. Um, a lot of stuff with certain authors working through issues. A few things that are, you know, one or two things that are absolutely terrible, and but some stuff that you're really, I bet you don't even know about yep. this week. We're also going to answer questions, but we're not going to do that till the end of the show, because quite frankly, Chris forgot to put the post up again until right before he started recording. Slow clap. Yeah. Official golf clap time. <laughs> so let's, uh, you know tell you some of the housekeeping first here well, one of the things that we really need you guys to do that really helps us out on the site is when you go to the page proper you'll see a bunch of pictures of the titles that we're reviewing that also conveniently have time codes on them if you just want to hear one or two of the reviews and not the whole show but you're missing you out skip one of some of our bon <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah and you might miss the running jokes come on they're always hysterical. If you click on those links, it'll bring you to the Amazon pages where you can buy those items. If you do that and you buy those items, we, in fact, do get a kickback from Amazon and a better one than you'd expect, strangely enough. It, it builds up and is, like, next to subscriptions, the number one thing that our site is funded from. So we really appreciate it when you do that. But that's not all. 
If you're going to buy anything from Amazon, even if it is not that item in particular, porn. as long well, I don't think they really sell porn on Amazon. Yeah, they do. Do they? Yeah. Huh. Okay. There we go. Fair enough. And not just hentai. <laughs> yeah, and not just hentai. Which okay. gets under the wire, seemingly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I just never thought to search for porn on Amazon. Cause it, it's... I, I, there's a couple of things I've reviewed where it randomly like hits other, other titles I'm going to recommend. That's, like, that's not even close. Because it's free all over the internet. I don't even know why anyone owns porn anymore. What What is the point? Guilt? Yeah. Guilt? Uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, Critics, we have none. I know, right? I don't need... We keep it with our shame. I don't need... A, who needs a whole movie? I need three and a half minutes of a movie. Anyway. Or, or 30 <laughs> seconds on repeat. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so, anything you're going to buy from those links... As long as you start from our links, it comes back to us and we make money from it. Also, like I said, like I mentioned, the subscriptions, huge deal for us, really is. And we just added the original Gentleman Season 2 is what we're calling it to make up for the fact we didn't have a show for like six months. Uh, uh, on the brown coat level of subscriber. And that is definitely guaranteed going to be a bi-weekly show going on into the future. I have commitment from Martin <laughs> to do this uh, and, and it, his address more importantly <laughs> well we actually have a trans a real transaction and a contract so Ooh. it is in fact going to happen it will be worth your money and there are more subscriber extras all the time the breakfast club of uh, a pub of course is the daily news or the weekly news show with me and Brian that is on the uh, red shirt level already that's guaranteed every week maybe not on the same day every week but at least once a week <laughs> regardless uh, and more and more coming I can't even begin to tell you some of the new exciting things we have in store for you so anyway with that being done I think it's time for us to move ahead we'll get to you in a while Torgo calm down Aww. and move into the reviews that was weird how did you you said the wow wow <laughs> I was I'm getting like Joel McHale on the soup when he, who's officially tired of doing the intro to uh, reality reality show clip time. So now he just like mimes it or walks off rather than actually says it. It's <laughs> like, I'm just kind of getting to that point. It's like, ah, messing with the, messing with the equation. Anyway, uh, first off, let me just say one of our good friends and longtime fan of the site and of Spill.com before, Jack Gatinella, one of those guys I've known him since he was much younger. Now he has developed into a full-blown filmmaker, and he has released his first movie on DVD, uh, Green Eyes. Go, now, Jack. You can buy this now. You can Google it online. It's a nice little uh, character piece drama. Um, you know... He's gone. He's gone pro. Oof. He's gone indie pro. Anyway, too and, good for the likes of us. And because of the fact this guy is my friend and everything, I really don't feel terribly comfortable reviewing this film. Uh, I like to call it the Cargill rule because back in the day, Cargill backed out of a couple reviews because he was good friends with whoever directed or wrote the <laughs> film. And he's like, I, I can't, I can't do it. Anything I say on this is suspect. Even my own thoughts, I feel suspect about it. Uh, and fair enough. But I, you know, this guy's been helping us out all along. He's been a big supporter of the site. I'm just saying it might be a nice turnaround to help him out as well. Check out his movie, Green Eyes. Uh -huh. But in terms of our own reviews, let's start right out with what we, with the Green Prince. Hmm. Keeping up the green theme. The green is that a theme? Are we are we oh, theming that, it? Green Eyes and now Green Prince. Oh, that's true. Yeah. 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 Words. It ain't easy. They're so important. It ain't easy reviewing green. 
all the colors that I've seen. Uh, no, this is a new documentary by the director of Man on a Wire, and uh, which I have still never seen. You've still never seen I've heard it's so good. It is rather spectacular. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the other. Do you remember the other film that he did? No. Uh, it's it's a, another really big documentary. Uh, it's gonna, it, it will, uh, I'll remember in a moment. But... Uh, it is a based on autobiography. Autobiography. <laughs> autobiography. Again, words so so important and valuable uh, to us of uh, Mossab Hassan Youssef uh, called "Son of Hamas: A Gripping Account of Terror, Betrayal, poli- Political in- Intrigue, and Unthinkable Choices" that created quite a bit of chaos when it was originally released in and of itself. Um, and this movie is a sort of stylized talking heads version with the two main players in this, uh, Mossab Hassan Youssef, uh, and, uh, Gonan Ben Yitzhak, who is a, was a agent for the Israeli sort of secret service, the, the Shin Bet. The Shin Bet. Uh, and the story is basically where Mossab comes from a family that is very much part of the Hamas and connected with Hamas's father as a leader in that group and a spokesman and was lo- looking to be in a position eventually maybe to become the leader of it eventually. Um, and he was, you know, he, he was just a kid when he was picked up for buying guns and not like in a, any sort of professional set way in a sort of like, I want to get, he probably, I think they said it was like three guns or something like yeah. that. It was like some like, okay, well this is what you do in this environment. You learn how to use guns and you arm yourself and you prepare for the time when you're going to, you know, take out the bad guys. Well, he was captured by the Shin Bet. And much to his surprise, despite a scary beginning, they treated him, according to him, very humanely and were very like, look, you know, we want you to come work for us, honestly. And we believe that the Hamas is really, they're just, your dad is just, he may be a nice guy, but he's misinformed working with these people. And the way to peace is not this kind of violence and yada, yada. Um, certainly a slanted viewpoint is prevented, pre- presented in this film. I'm not saying it's accurate. I'm just saying it is what it is. It's, it's we don't get somebody much, speaking the alternate viewpoint. No, you, you don't point. get ha- you don't get somebody from a Hamas spokesman going, "Yeah, maybe the Israelis have caused a few issues here." That that right. is very much absent. Um, this is, in some ways, an almost unprecedented piece of piece of cinema because this isn't a, this, this is about the Israeli Palestinian conflict inevitably, but. More importantly, it's a thing that you see mentioned all the time in spy films, and that's the you know the informant handler relationship, yeah, and what it means to them as people, as individuals. That is what's really fascinating because yeah, and part of it is that it does seem that uh, Masab and uh, uh, Ben Yitzhak had a very peculiar relationship because they you know, it was it was a, a, a handler informant relationship that worked yeah. because they trusted each other yeah and, and developing a real friendship out of this because there was a real trust and the fact it wasn't like you see in the movies where dude if you don't do exactly what we say we're going to kill your family or we're going to kill you he wouldn't do stuff all the time yeah <laughs> he was very willful he's like i'm not going to i'm not going to let anybody in my family get hurt I think, yeah, that's the one of the complicated things about this. That the reason uh, 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 Hassan Youssef turns is not 
that he goes, I don't believe in the Palestinian state. He says, I don't want people to die. I don't want that on my conscience. Yeah. So this means that there's times where he is in direct conflict with the Shin Beth because he says, what you're going to do is, going to, is kill people, which is exactly what I'm trying to stop. This is about a man contending with his own moral quandaries. And at the same time, uh, 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 Ben Yitzhak is going through these same issues that he, you know, and, and eventually, you know, it becomes a career problem for him that he's too, too close. This is a really fascinating picture of two men who find themselves in this most unusual relationship. Um, yeah. It's mostly told through a combination of um, archive footage. Uh, which they had a startling amount of. A huge, huge amount of. Some kind of stock footage of, like, weird stuff being viewed through, through night grid vision. But it know. makes you go, like, who was shooting some of this stuff? There's a lot of footage of this, you know, Masab with his dad and what have you. And you're like, who was shooting all this footage and how did they get it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this is the point. This is why he was, his code name was the Green Prince. This was a guy who was the, the next in line to the guy who was probably going to take over Hamas. Right. This is an amazingly important figure, and the fact and that the fact he, they get him is so is so important. That he to is in like turn like a complete turncoat, and like the whole idea that like there's so much here with him talking about not wanting to besmirch the honor of his family even though he himself admits early on the biggest thing he could do to do that is what he's doing but all along the way he makes all these decisions so as not to hurt the honor of his family and it's a fascinating almost kind of freudian thing going on here with his relationship with his new father figure uh, ben yitzhak um and it's just like him confronting the idea that he is in every technical term a traitor yeah he absolutely is but that's not always a bad thing. <laughs> and more importantly, it's about him saying there's a difference between being a traitor to my people, something and that my you nation, believe in, yeah. and, and to being a traitor to my principles. And this, he stays. This is the fascinating thing all the way through. He is stays absolutely true. loyal to his principle, which is I don't want to see more people die. And the funny thing is, you end up seeing Ben Yitzhak, who I get the feeling had never really had the handle anybody like Mozab before sort of changed to be more like him yeah. as the story goes around. There was a, a point where there was the opportunity to take out, like, a giant group of some of the heads of Hamas at once. They could just could have bombed this building. They would have killed 30, 40 guys. Easy, probably. Uh, and it's you listen to you and watch the footage from the spy planes, everything, up to the minute of where ultimately, it seems due to his urging... They didn't do it because basically they would have had to kill Mossab and his whole family as well to yeah. even do that act. And the stuff they have to do to cover it up, cover stuff up along the way, they constantly have to throw Mossab in jail. <laughs> you know? There's very complicated uh, behind the scenes, behind the scenes wranglings to to, to yeah. make sure that even the other intelligence units don't know who this guy is because if they do, somebody you know it might get out. Uh, this film actually. Rem- uh, it reminds me why I liked another film from last year so much, uh, A Most Wanted Man, that a lot, a lot of people went, well, you know, it's not a realistic uh, depiction of Spycraft. I mean, it absolutely is, and this reinforces it. Yeah. You know, that, and I, you know, I don't, I have never, I, I love um, intelligence documentaries. It's one of my favorite genres. Um, I have never seen this played out before. In talking about how, how, how and why people become 
informants. In such, such a fascinating human point. terms yeah. is the thing. Nothing about this feels cold or distant. And like I said, there has been criticism like, okay, this is a really biased documentary. It helped one, I think, four Israeli film awards. It is, it is very non-critical of the uh, Israeli yeah. intelligence community. Uh, but uh, but, but we, it's not... We generously say? But ultimately, it's not really about that. No. And I think that's what saves this film. There's some extra features. There's a director, uh, a 30 minute interview with the director, which is very good. Not of uh, Shearman. Um, there's Israeli news segment on on about Mossab that's about seven minutes long. There's some bonus interview extracts, storyboards, and of course the original trailer. Ultimately, this is a pretty solid little documentary. Uh, now, the one I had, I was not as crazy about as I thought I was going to be, was Art and Craft, which comes from our friends at Oscilloscope, I yeah. believe, who always put out interesting films, like movies you, you don't always love them, but you've never generally seen anything just like them before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Art and Craft follows the story of Mark A. Landis, who is a... I'm not sure what his condition is. I don't even think he has just one mental condition. He seems to have a bundle. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Like, the guy is past... No, I mean, he's he's been diagnosed as schizophrenic, but then other people did said, he, no, he's not schizophrenic. He's got these... He's got problems. He's got a lot of stuff. He's one of those guys... He, the not moment least that he looks like a miniature Tom Noonan. He does totally look like a miniature Tom, Tom Noonan. The moment you see him, you, you like like 30 seconds into the conversation, you're like... That guy's got issues. I don't know what they are, but he's got issues. And the thing that his issues brought him to the attention of everyone was, was that he started, he figured out that he had a gift for doing exact copies of other people's works of art, uh, you know, mimicking them down to the brushstroke and even figuring out the best ways to age stuff and make it look older. Uh, now, there's certainly other people who've done this sort of thing in history. Uh, Amir's is probably the most famous that's explored in Orson Welles' F for Fake, uh, which is very much A worth your great time. and very revolutionary documentary. Indeed. But th- this guy didn't make a dime. No interest in it. He did it because that's what, as far as he's concerned, that's what I do. I just do this. It's the only thing I'm good at. And would pose as a number of people, including a priest, and be a philanthropist donating these works to museums of which uh, God, what they say, there was like almost a hundred around the that they country that they know of. And he's not saying. No. Like, I don't even think he knows even but like that we're hanging in museums as listed as being by this artist. And you kind of follow this guy who's uh, has become obsessed with him and tracking down this yeah, stuff. Yeah, a guy called Matt Leiniger who actually worked at the Cincinnati Art Museum and went to his bosses and went, this thing this guy gave to you is a fake. It is, cl- you know, it's clearly a fake. It can't be the real thing. It's or it's hanging up in a different museum. And they were so mad at him for pointing out that they've been duped that mysteriously yeah. he loses his job. And this this is what's fascinating about this documentary for me is that the art community does not want to admit it's been duped. Yeah. They just don't want to know. And how easy it was that this guy with mental problems, yeah. using stuff he got from Hobby Lobby, and no formal training of any kind, was duping all these people. Yeah. I mean, like, talk about, like, I mean, as much as F for Fake also is about sort of like, so then what is the value of art? If it's that easy to fool people and recreate stuff, what's the actual value? This asks that same question in a weird sort of way, taking this guy who we start viewing as like, you know, the villain, the antagonist. And by the end of the movie, he is totally the protagonist and the hero of it. And the guy who was tracking him down looks really pathetic and lame. 
<laughs> I, I, I got to disagree there. Really? Because you, you get to a point for me that you realize this guy, his issues are so profoundly deep that he is locked into doing this. But it, and it asks the really interesting question of like, well, why isn't he doing something else? He's clearly a skilled artist. Yeah. Even as an imitator. And he, well, they, and he just goes, oh, well, you know, I did one original thing, yeah. yeah but the, I wasn't really I mean, that's not even subtext. That's text of the film as people repeatedly ask him, you're clearly incredibly talented. Why don't you do original works? Yeah. I mean, now that you have a name, you're featured in but art magazines. But then the magazines. question is, is his real skill copying? Right. Is that the skill? It, you know, it's not, is it, it, what if there is no creativity in what you do? Yeah. It is purely, you're basically a, a, a human photocopier. Yeah. Because he's got a technique that he uses again and again and again and again. And he's got a couple of skills that he can use. Is forging his skill. And, you know, this kind of weird obsession that develops. And then this, they, this third figure who comes in, who's actually an art curator at a different museum, who ends up interviewing him and going, why do you do this? Yeah. And it, basically it's a combination of mental health issues and boredom and too much money it's if daniel johnston had been an art forger instead of musician yeah. is what this feels like i one of the things i really liked about this about this is that there are you are you do come out of it asking a lot of questions um about you know how can he afford this this you know how does he do this what happened you know why yeah and they go well rather than re-edit the film to to answer those questions there is actually an extra on here uh, called For Real on Art and Film where they actually address these things and go well okay so here's where you have the money and here's this and I'm like okay you, you admit there are failings with your documentary but you don't go try and go back and, and reconstruct the crime and I think- you just say okay here it is but what's really fascinating is the, the camera crew is following this guy around as he's duping people yeah and I'm like and let's be there's clear. A, there's a really interesting question of culpability there. No criminal charges have ever been filed against this guy. And why? Because technically he didn't do anything nope. wrong. He's never asked for one red cent for anything that he has, has done. Not one. Technically he hasn't broken any laws. It's really interesting though. There's a moment. I, I, I won't spoil the end, but you do have to stick around. I mean, some documentaries kind of like the last 10 minutes is just a neat wrap up. Yeah. This actually, uh, like The Overnighters, one of my favorite documentaries from last year, it has a moment right near the end where the rug is definitely pulled from underneath you. And if you think he's the protagonist at that point, it's a new way for him to become a menace. And I think actually where he ends up at the end of this film, it goes from being, you know, just kind of this guy's annoying and an issue for art, art collectors to almost malevolent, but mm. from good intention. I don't know. I find that really, I found that really fascinating because he, there's a point where he's going to stop playing with just people's careers, but with their emotions and with legacies. And I think that's a really, really fascinating thing. I mean, I I understand what you're talking about. I just looked at it as an extension of him as the tragic protag- protagonist. Ultimately, that he really is incapable of understanding he has why no people are so upset. No empathy whatsoever. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, this is a very sad documentary in a lot of ways because it is about a man with with severe issues. Yeah. But it's also about well. You know, what do you do when there is no way to stop that? When there is no medical, you know, he's he's seeing shrinks. He's on medication. He's doing all the things that you know. You'll say, well, why don't we do X, Y, and Z? 
and short of like taking all his pencils away, there is literally nothing you can do. That that is very true. Um, I, I think my problems with this film was ultimately it's longer than it needs to be. This would have made a great episode of like a show like sixty minutes or something. There's a couple of a couple of films this week that I think I think uh, really should have found the edit button. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is the week of good stuff, but a little over long. And I had that problem as well with the next title we're talking about, which is called Love is the Devil, Study for a Portrait of Francis Bacon. Now, this was made in 1998 uh, by the BBC for television, but keep in mind... Which is BBC, about the last time I saw it, I think. Oh, you have seen this before. Yeah, okay. I, I, I saw this uh, a, a very long time ago. Keep in mind, that makes it still a hard R film. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, this is filled with, like, nudity and drugs and all sorts of stuff. And the nudity part might interest uh, you ladies and or gay men out there, because this is an early role for Daniel Craig, James Bond, who bears it all repeatedly in this film. Unfortunately, I don't think Derek Jacobi does. No, no. I don't. I, yeah, I'm fairly I sure. Mean, you could, I, there's points where there's, like, sex scenes, but I think it's a body double yeah. um, for both of them. Uh, and also, uh, if you ever wanted to know what Tilda Swinton's character from Snowpiercer looked like when she was younger, this is it. <laughs> she is, her character in this, playing this, uh, the owner of this, basically the Algonquin roundtable for this group of artists, um, the, the bar they all go to. She she really is. She looks like that character when she was like in her late 20s. Hello. <laughs> like terrible teeth sticking out and everything. This is a shoe. But this is, you know, actually, it's about Francis Bacon, played by Derek, the wonderful Derek uh, J- uh, Jacobi, who is one of the most controversial artists of the 20th century, who's, if, if you get a chance, stop this podcast and go and Google his art, and you'll be like, Jesus Christ, this is dark, bloody, nightmarish stuff. But he was incredibly well-known and well-liked in his own lifetime. He was a bit of a bon vivant, a flaming queen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that did not care who knew it in a time that that was still not considered to be well, generally was, okay. The thing was, you know, the, the British relationship with uh, homosexuality uh, during the, 50, uh, the 50, 40s, 50s, and 60s is really... It's okay if you're an artist. In the 60s, it was also okay if you were a gangster as well. Right. Uh, but it, it was acceptable if you were an artist. It was almost you know, you know, mandatory. It was like, you're, you're an artist and, and not gay. You have to be a pervert on some level. Yeah. Uh, at, least in, I mean, at least in the terms of how it was considered. I am day. a huge fan of, of Bacon's work. Um, you know, I think he pushed boundaries. He <laughs> knew how to use darkness, His I think, in a, in a po- way that few other... His um, Pope series oh. are just nightmare-inducing immediately. Yeah, like he would—he did stuff in series, like a lot of artists do, um, and they don't represent. I felt in this film all of his periods all that accurately. It focuses a lot on the box period, where yeah. he would have these sort of mathematical almost formations around what his subject was in a very abstract sort of way, and they—that's definitely something this plays with a lot. It plays with a lot of his use of spirals. Um, and the film itself really envisions it's trying to be representative of his art in the way that it's shot. And I think more than not, it does a pretty good job of that. Um, ultimately, it's about the relationship between him and George Dyer, who was Daniel Craig plays, who was his young lover uh, that he had a strained relationship with. And, you know, the thing is, George was a, a very, you know, I mean, he was like a common man, as it were, a dock worker type. And can to use to use the the parlance of the community at that time, a bit of rough. 
Yeah, a bit of rough. And uh, a bit of rough trade would probably be more accurate. Um, and he doesn't really like or understand this group that he's been thrust in the middle for, but he has serious emotional problems of his own. I mean, he's clearly deeply bipolar or manic depressive or something. He's haunted by horrific nightmares that are very uh, Francis Bacony in and of themselves when we <laughs> see them. And, I mean, ultimately it's about his complete collapse and how that drastically changed the life of uh, Francis Bacon and what happened to him afterwards, which we only kind of see the the very beginning of in real life. After uh, George was gone, Francis was never the same. Like the, his whole bon vivant personality was just gone. He became a recluse, stopped hanging out with any of his, you know, group of friends. And the places this film works the least is are the parts that have to do with a group of friends. Because there's long extended sequences where he's holding court among all these people. And they are the most annoying people on the planet. <laughs> you want them all to die in a fire. Most of what they say doesn't even make sense. Maybe it's because it's re- relating to things that you have to know about what was actually happening at the time to even understand. But I find myself just going, I don't even know what these people are talking about, but I know they're being really annoying while they're talking about it. None of them are nice people. They're all giant, self-involved dicks. You know, and you really, really feel sorry for Daniel Craig's character, who is feels like he's the avatar for the audience, if anything, like bumbling his way through this confusing world and not understanding why everyone's such a prick. It's weird. Now, having seen them both, but not in a long while, you're actually making me want to go back and watch, you know, rewatch. Uh uh, Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle far more than I want to go back and watch you know, Love is the <laughs> right, Devil. Right, no, which I think is definitely a better movie. Um, <laughs> the best thing about this is, honestly, the performances are really good between Jacoby and Craig. Jacoby. Uh, Jacoby, sorry. I'm going to call him Jacoby. You shouldn't. His mother called him Jacoby. What? No, she Jacoby? Jacoby. 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 I'm going to call him Jacoby from now on. You know, Kevin, I'm going to set the cats on you. Derek Jacoby. <laughs> The cats obey my commands, Richard. They obey nothing, and you know it. <laughs> That's true. Except the sound of a can opener. That's pretty much it. Um, I, I really, this is a, a really strong role for young Daniel Craig, who hadn't done a lot, I believe, at this point yet. And you can see why years later he made a great James Bond, because even as a you know sullen homosexual you know, dock worker type, he's still really sexy, really good looking. You're like, wow, he's got Bond written all over him, even playing this very different type of role. Um, I, I I do recommend this, but with, you know, a bit of like, it's not an exciting film. It's not a fun film. In fact, it's dull as hell through a lot of it, but there's a lot of visual. It's, it's, it's a 1990s BBC, BBC television play. Of course it's dull. But there's a lot of visual stuff that's actually pretty impressive if you're a fan of Francis Bacon and his works. Yeah. So on that level, if you already know you really like Francis Bacon, yes, this is worth checking out. Otherwise... And if you like a late-era Ryuchi Sakamoto soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Otherwise, not so much. Uh, but our next documentary, I... Totally, uh, absolutely recommend across the board. That is the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Oddly, I was just trying to find somebody else's review of this thing to see, you know, basically to have a list on here so I can just have the extras to refer to, which I like to have. Uh, and I had trouble finding it. Really? I don't think many people even got sent this film, really? which, which baffles me. It seems most people don't even know this came out. This is a documentary about Studio uh, Ghibli. And Hayao Miyazaki, and as well as his two co-partners in founding the studio in the first place that is set while they're making The Wind Rises. 
which at this point we already know he had announced, look, I'm going into retirement after this. This is going to be my last film. Although nobody believed him. And which is fascinating. There's actually a bit where they're on a, they're on a press tour for it and, it, and, they, and somebody goes, so there's rumors that this is going to be his last film. And the producer says, yeah, no, this is his last film. And he's done... And they laugh, and it's like, you know, it's yeah. almost like they can't believe that this grumpy 80-year-old guy is going to re- retire. And there are several points during it where he's like, no, I'm so tired, I hate doing this so much, it's so much work. And there are several points where he goes, huh, I wonder if I can use this in my next film. You know, and even like the retirement announcement, he's like, I'm retiring after this in 10 years. And you're like, wait, what? Which is it? Why would you announce your retirement in a decade? Yes, when you're probably going to be dead. Of course, that's what everybody retires. But ultimately, this is a very revealing look, in some ways uncomfortably so, of the man Hayao Miyazaki, who is kind of a misanthrope in some ways, believes the world is coming to an end, is like apocalyptic as hell in his vision of the world, and yet is all about appreciating the beauty of what's there while it's still there. He just doesn't think it's going to be around for much longer at all. He's convinced. Well, it, it doesn't help his his temperament that he starts making one of his most personal films. And, and interestingly, um, and this is something they kind of touch on with this, uh, people know Studio Ghibli, obviously, for Miyazaki's fantastical stuff, but they also know things like Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. But that's not him. Right. That that's uh, the other the other core guy yeah, who, who uh, uh, Pakusan um, uh, Seo uh, Takahata, um, who was actually the guy who discovered Miyazaki, right? And was originally... he did all the serious stuff for years and years right. and years. But he works incredibly slowly. Whereas there's a certain amount of you know it is, it, his work rate is astounding. But Miyazaki, his ability to churn a film out with amazing regularity and amazing level of quality, yeah. I, well, I, I I like Miyazaki's work. I'm not a. I, I've never been the world's biggest Studio Ghibli fan. I'm a fanboy. So. I I know you are, and like I I like their work. I'm I'm just I'm like yeah. I, sometimes I find it a little bit cloying. Yeah, it's, it's like, not. Oh for look, everybody. there comes a there comes a a, a bubbly, balloony, ghost like pixie thing. Yay! Oh yay! Another one. I love it. Give me it's more. Like when fucking elves turn up in Tolkien. It's like, <laughs> really, really. There's gonna be a standard remix with twenty more of them. Um... <laughs> And Only Studio Ghibli could have made Tom Bombadil work. That's my theory. <laughs> but the, what's really fascinating is that the, the, you know he's working on The Wind Rises. Takahata is uh, ta- um, uh, uh, Takahata is working on um, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Yeah, which, which is the polar opposite of, of everything that he's ever done. Yeah, Takahata Simi has no interest in being involved with this film, which is about Studio Ghibli. Yeah. And his absence is really fascinating because it's both a problem and a real strength because you all you have is Miyazaki going, oh, he doesn't really want to want to work on it. Miyazaki kind of comes off as a cantankerous asshole in this. Mm. But what's, what it really comes down to is that you have Takahata, who works his own pace, does these kind of passion projects. I mean, this is very similar to a lot of independent art, uh, animation artists who take forever. They'll take 10, 15 years to work on one film. Yeah. That's just the pace this thing requires. Um and then you have the, the the pair's producer Suzuki, who kind of binds them together, and has obviously worked a very a difficult path to get the two to even stay in the same. Not even you can't even say building. They work at opposite end, ends of the same town right. at this point. They you know they they are old friends who cannot stand each other. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. The same room, and they both are cantankerous, grumpy, 
difficult to work with people yeah. who their staff is terrified of. There's a wonderful moment where they're interviewing one of, one of Miyazaki's staff, and, he, and she goes, yeah, um, if you want to walk away from this place with any self-respect, just don't come here in the first place. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't say, this is a horrible place to work, but she comes pretty damn close. I mean, this it's, isn't, it seems oddly joyless. This isn't like watching the Shining documentary about Kubrick, no. where you actually see him being this outrageous asshole, but it is... A subtext all the way through that what we're not seeing is when he is indeed having a fit and screaming at people. It seems clear that sort of thing actually happens here. That, yes, he can be a little past harsh taskmaster and an outright asshole to make sure he's getting exactly what he wants, even though he's a guy who is making it up as he goes along. Yeah. Like, the the extent to which his films are not actually pre-planned, that he is just... Literally, as he creates the storyboard, he is coming up with the story. Yeah. Was, and then expects everybody else to understand what he was doing without telling them. It's like, God damn. But that's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I look at it as like, well, that's genius for you. He, he, is, <laughs> he is a fascinating figure. Really, this film, it's a little, it, it's weird. It's both in awe and enamored of him, but at the same time, very much aware that there's all these incredibly talented people around him who have, A, allowed him to do what he does for so long. If if it wasn't for Suzuki, you know, Ghibli would have collapsed years ago. Yeah. That's very clear. And he never get, he, you know, he, he doesn't seem to want the credit for it, but it's really clear. He's what, the, the glue that holds it together. Yeah. Uh, Takahata is, is, in many ways, probably the better critically acclaimed because he hasn't done much, but it has been landmark Japanese cinema. Yes. Um, in a different way to say, you know, uh, Nausicaa or something like that, which is very important, but it's not kind of like it, it, you know, it's not like dropping a, a, a rock in the in the water. The kind of impact it's had. Um, this is about a lot of people living in Miyazaki's shadow, and how do they? Even his son, so how do they contend with being in the shadow of this this grumpy genius? And then the film takes you know, every opportunity it can to show us him being a grumpy genius. I mean, I, I, if there's a problem here, again, I feel this film was a little bit overly long. I could have Agreed. done with fewer sequences of Miyazaki sitting there going, oh, I'm being grumpy and I'm going to, like, sketch something for ten minutes. Well, it, it didn't need... I, I felt that was reinforced. And there was, there were, there, you know, it could have done with another pass to the editor just to focus it a little bit I, more, but I it's think really fascinating. The reasoning for that, and I, I understand what they were trying to do, I just don't think it worked 100%, is that they wanted to give the documentary itself the feel of a Miyazaki film, that there's lots of long, loving shots of the light filtering down through the trees onto things and the flowers moving in the breeze and Miyazaki talking about why that's beautiful and you're like... We get that we've seen the movies. We wouldn't be watching this if we yeah. hadn't seen those movies. I don't think you need to try so hard to craft an ambiance around it to make it exactly representative when it's extending the running time by probably 20, 30 minutes longer than it needs to be. Um, one thing I would point out as well that man smokes like a chimney. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. He's How just is he not dead? one. Yeah, I know, right? And he's in great health. They show him like running around the place and everything. You're like, Jesus Christ. I tell you, though, that, that uh, company mandated workout that they seem to have once a day, that seems to have done in the power of good. I mean, this is, this is a fascinating documentary. It's not. It's not quite warts and all, no. But definitely like a but large not a mole piece. Either. It's definitely large moles that you may want somebody to look at uh, and all. Um, it, it would actually make a. You know, sometimes I, I do admit that like, I'm reminded of other films. Uh, uh, this makes a really interesting uh, 
partner piece with a film that came out, um, I think in 2012, I want to say, um, Saving Sleeping Beauty, mm. which was about you know, the, the almost disappearance and reemergence of Disney's animation department, which also takes this kind of like, you know, this is a film that is made for people who love this, but they understand that the people behind these are flawed and are making business decisions. Yes. And there's a very interesting section in this quite early on which bursts the bubble of Miyazaki as just this you know, guy who sits there and just does art for art's sake when they have a merchandise meeting and he just goes, this is all for kids. Our market is adults and we need to, re- we need to re-engineer yeah. this stuff. And it's like, he's survived in this industry for a long time. That's pretty savvy to come out and realize, even though this is a guy who doesn't even really like adults, he only seems to like children, realizing that the market has switched. Yeah. Like, the people who are buying Totoro dolls are grown-ups. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's true. I got like six of them. Totoro. Totoro. Oh, I love to- Totoro so much. Can't even begin to tell you. They have a new one out I saw on the, in Guzu Gallery the other day that actually has the little girl on top of his chest and, like, makes sounds when you squeeze it. And I was like, I want it, I want it. Um, now, this has got a bonus feature that really does fall under. You want to check out at least the first third of it. Um, the, the conceit is it's through the eyes of the studio cat that runs around. That's, <laughs> that's not why I'm recommending it. In fact, it's a silly conceit that's abandoned for most of the running of it. The it's studio just, cat is a, actually quite a major figure in this film. In the film, he is. <laughs> and here, it's like they he's basically just serving as a narrator for these pieces so they can talk over this footage that they have that isn't necessarily edited as to be continuous. So they invent the narrator of the cat and the first third of this is John Lasseter coming to the studios the head of Pixar and uh, now Disney Animation in general and basically getting down on his knees to worship Hayao Miyazaki which is something you watch at the end after you've seen everything else yes it adds a whole different context this guy's just abject worship of this man. And then even afterwards seeing Miyazaki, you see him responding to it when he's not there. And he's very like, yeah, that guy's all right. <laughs> it's like clearly, uh, clearly not a hundred percent reciprocated, but you know, he's like, yeah, I respect that guy. I like what he's doing. But you know, as whereas Lasseter's just like, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> Be fascinating to, to know what Miyazaki finally really thought of, um, uh, Taylor Princess Kaguya, particularly the fact it's got an Oscar nomination. <laughs> well, yeah, but so did The Wind Rises. Yeah, so. I know, but like, you know, this, this, this kind remember. of weird did, rivalry between the two. Did is... The Wind Rises win? I want to say it did. I, I can't it, remember. I think it did because there was a lot of controversy about it because a lot of Chinese people went, no! Really? This is, a, this is a movie about how wonderful the guy that invented the Zero was. Yeah, no. Well, and they do actually deal with that in this documentary as well, like mm. the difficulties of the I subject that's, matter. that's one of the interesting things about it is... Miyazaki has a real opportunity to explain why he made a film about a man who is, for a lot of people, is regarded as a war profiteer and and, uh, uh, virtually a war criminal, um, and why he made quite a sympathetic depiction of him. He does a lot better job of actually explaining why he thought this guy was a sympathetic character than he actually managed in The Wind Wind Rises. I I would agree with that. Which is not 100% successful. No. Uh, well, that leads us to our next film and big battles and Asian people. <laughs> Pirates! The Pirates! Pirates! This is a South Korean adventure film that is basically their Pirates of the Caribbean, which I mean huge budgets, giant sweeping sets, actual ships, at, giant battleships at sea tearing the shit out of each other, like lots of people swinging on ropes with knives in their teeth and, and uh, uh, love triangles and all sorts of stuff. And much like the Pirates of the Caribbean series, it's also 
only what it is. A big, expensive piece of fluff that's fun to watch. Did you know that... But dissolves shortly after the flavor is gone. For a long time, the highest budget porn film in the world was Pirates. I am aware of that. In fact, the funny thing about that is, just to take an aside for a minute, the ship on Pirates... Yeah was the Pirates of the Caribbean ship. Nice. They rented it under a assumed name, a different company name, so Disney did not realize that that's what they were using it for. Disney tried to sue them, and and it was thrown out of court, apparently. Why? So was there a black pill necklace? <laughs> ah! Well, this one... Brian's, Brian's pun dar has just gone off. He's like, I sense a great disturbance in the punosphere. <laughs> Uh, this bizarre story uh, starts at the beginning of the founding of the Joseon dynasty. Hey, I don't know anything about Korea, so I'm like, I don't know what that is. So apparently it was a dynasty. Hey. Uh, and this, basically the emperor uh, has sent his seal of state off oof, to, oof, to oof. Joseon from, with envoys oh, from China. Kind of and along the way, uh, the ship that's carrying it, ends up getting attacked by a giant sperm whale after the sperm whale has been attacked by them. Uh, and Is that off the set which, of pirates to- as well? Right. Which, which totally destroys this the ship. Like, literally just leaps in the air and lands in the middle of it. And, this, and it visibly swallows the seal in question. So they're like, shit. So now the, the call goes out. Somebody's got to get this seal. It's worth more than anything in this entire kingdom. Meanwhile, there's multiple groups who are involved in it. There's this one group of mountain bandits that are sort of like the majority of the comic relief. Uh, And then there's a group of pirates that are led by a female pirate because she's overthrown the previous kind of douchebag older guy pirate. Wait, what? (laughs) Um, how does the whale get up the mountain? No, no, no. Don't worry about that part. The whale never gets to the mountain. The idea is everybody's heading out to sea, eventually, Ah. in in this 130-minute running time film, eventually running out to sea to try and do this. And there's lots of jokes about, like, the mountain guys are like, ah, pirates, sea pirates aren't real men. You know, bandits, mountains are where real men go, and vice versa. So there's all this thing between them. Meanwhile, the head of the pirates and the head of the... uh, 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 Mountain bandits, obviously, are making eyes at each other, but neither one wants to admit it because they're... Not so much enemies as competitors, unfriendly competitors. Um, as the one guy who used to be a pirate who's joined the bandits and is kind of training them, even though he is a complete incompetent mess of a human being. Um, there's a ridiculous amount of characters on here, but thankfully they're all so distinctive looking. They give them so many ticks and styles that you can, in fact, you have no trouble with this huge amount of characters being clear who is who. Do you have it. trouble telling pirates apart? <laughs> yes. That's piratist. <laughs> um and there's no denying that this is a fun little film. It really genuinely is a fun movie. It's just, like I said, it's what it is. It's a piece of fluff. It's not as good as some of the films that it's aping. Like, I would not put this up against, in quality, the first Pirates of the Caribbean. I would easily <laughs> say third? it's better than most of the sequels. <laughs> but um, I actually kind of like the second one. But... The second one looks terrible when you realize that it ends with the third one. (laughs) That all of its important questions go unanswered in any satisfying way. Matrix syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, this is... It's fun. It's light. It's genuinely laugh-out-loud funny at points. The action is not like we're not talking martial arts type action or really impressive stuff but it all looks as cool as it needs to be in the context of this Um, and there's some points that are very Korean that do not contextually culturally contextually come over to us where we're where you're watching you're like I don't get it 
That's going like, to happen. I know that's a joke. Yeah, I just don't know what that actually means. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's worth checking out if you like this sort of thing. If you already know, like, four Korean films that are not of the arty kind, which are almost always great. The little or arty underground bloody. ones. Or extremely bloody, because that's the best stuff they do. The, of the pop Korean stuff, this is one of the better things that I've actually seen. Nice. Uh, now, as long as we're talking about... Uh, Asian films. Yes, let's just throw you all together under one big thing. Are you telling me you can't tell Asian films apart? <laughs> no, I definitely can, because this next film we're talking about, I will never be able to forget it or remove some parts of it from my mind. Yay! And that is, Why Don't You Play in Hell by the, the, the Japanese director whose name should be as familiar to people as Takashi Miike at this point in terms of, like, a dude who almost everything he does is worth checking out. It's a bit out. miraculous he's not. Yeah, I know. Uh, Sion Sono who has done any number of amazing films. Really, his breakout film was really Suicide Club. Yeah. Uh, which, which was, when was that? I some mean, time ago. Yeah, forever ago. That's like a, at least a decade. Yeah, ago. I saw that when it came out in 2001, or when it came out here, so it's probably more like 2003 or so. But, um, yeah, and then he did uh, Hair Extensions, X-Day Hair Extensions, which was Great a big film. festival fit. Uh, Love Exposure, which was a big festival hit. Uh, Cold Fish, which is my second favorite film by him, yep. but so great. And then uh, just recently, Tokyo Tribes, which ho- hopefully you guys will get a chance to see soon. Uh, the- it's been, it has been picked up. Uh, XYZ uh, picked up uh, distribution rights, so it I mean, should be coming out this year. The, fi- the insanity of that film somehow makes the insanity of Why Don't You Play in Hell make it look like On Golden Pond by comparison. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless... This story, which is sort of a Japanese get shorty with everything that that would come with, <laughs> is the story of this group of young filmmakers called the, that call themselves the Fuck Bombers. And when we first see them, they're English. just kids. <laughs> right? We first see them, they're just kids. And as the movie goes along, we get to see them... Uh, you know, turn into like ten years later, their dreams have not been fulfilled. They they when they were kids, they met up with like this street thug who they're like, "You're awesome. We want you to be our action star." And he buys into the the glamour of it all and the like and the the compliments that they're just showering him with, and kind of leaves the gangs to join their gang. To, ten years later, they've managed exactly one trailer. Yeah, they've done pretty much nothing. Um, for some reason, they have three hot chicks who hang around with them all the time, but I'm never really quite sure I think where it's they came they, from. Because they they hang around in a cinema for free and can just. Get them popcorn is that what it is i get the feeling that's that's the sole limit of it uh but plus come on how how many feckless wannabe filmmakers have we met that somehow inexplicably that's true it's, have an entourage they are the like, music happens they are the musicians of today yes <laughs> uh, have you got a, still still got a super eight yes you can't throw a rock in this town without hitting uh somebody who used to be a musician and now wants to be a filmmaker yep uh, shouldn't. yeah so there's meanwhile there's this whole thing going on but like 10 years later where there's this mobster whose wife went to jail for him because a bunch of guys came to his house to kill him and only she was there and she just slaughtered the living shit out of all of them with the kitchen knife like in the and then ex- goes to the police in the extreme visual style of the film exaggerated her house is literally filled with like ankle deep blood 
throughout the house <laughs> in one of the most memorable visual sequences of the whole film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stabs the last guy to death repeatedly in front of a whole crowd of people who, you know, through an open railed, open great, like a, a walkway and just pours blood down on all. They were the like, ew, ew, ew. Uh, wonderful sequence. It's just charming, filled with light. But all these years later, she's going to get out of jail and their daughter, who was a, kind of a, a child flash in the pan star with a commercial and a theme song she sang in it for a toothpaste. The song actually even making its way onto the radio is a popular hit. Constantly. Uh, she, he has been lying to her saying, yes, she's acting. She's taking all these roles. The truth is he's been trying to, but she just doesn't want to do this. She just wants to go party and have a good time. Uh, the mother is, he's told her, yes, she's filming this action film she's in right now. Even though she's not, he was, he set her up for one and she just took off. Uh, so we get to see her, who's absolutely beautiful, by the mm. way. Um, she meets us in trying to get away from her family's goons or trying to get her back. She meets this hapless dork on the street and tells him, I'll pay you to be my boyfriend and follow me around for a while. Uh, there's this whole other mob who was enemies at one point with this mob and now is trying to go back to it again that wear kimonos. Who, yeah, for no, for no really apparent reason, decided to go, decided they were going to become much more traditional and wear, wear kimonos. And there comes a point and a, a, a reason of insane logic that somehow, because it's Sion Sono and this man can sew together just the weirdest lunacy. Weirdest lunacy. They all come together to make a film. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's like, there's almost no such no such thing as saying spoilers for this film because it's not really about what happens. It's about watching it happen. Yeah. But ultimately, the giant... Like, I mean, this is playing with the, the memes of the Yakuza film all the way through it. And the giant expected bloodbath, like one Yakuza group versus the other, is can both sides are convinced to let these filmmakers film this as it's happening and make this be the movie to star this young girl because everyone is obsessed with her. Yes. <laughs> Every, the, she's the daughter of the, uh, of the one guy who really is insisting that this is going to happen. So his wife can be happy. The other guy had a formative experience with her as a little girl meeting her and has never stopped being obsessed with her. This is like Blake Edwards, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. The, the, this is, this is it's, it's yeah. a bizarre sex comedy about film and, I don't even know if I'd call it a sex comedy. There's elements of... Well, not like 60s sex comedy where it's like, oh, let's all chase the pretty lady. And everything is that level of hyper-exaggerated with people. People do a lot of... Screaming for no reason. This is super cartoonish. Yeah. Completely crazy. And laugh out loud funny. It's hilarious. Repeatedly through this whole thing. A lot of times just with guys' facial expressions, the weird, exaggerated way they're doing things, almost a Bruce Campbell and Evil Dead sort of way. Um, the, and, and, you know, the, the father who actually, I can't remember his name, this is going to drive me nuts for the next year or so. Uh, he's actually a very respected actor in Yakuza film. Oh, you see him all the time. He, I, he is uh, one of the best things uh, about, actually, one of my favorite Beat Takeshi films of recent years, Outrage. Oh, so uh, good. Did you see the second one? I have not seen oh, uh, I have it. Oh, right. I, I, Outrage Beyond is, is on my list of things I really want to see. It's really but good. Outrage is just an amazing film, and he's so good in it. Uh, and he's great in this as the guy, as the one guy who is almost an anchor in reality, but 
has created has done more to create this delusion than anyone else. He's the one person who really is a liar. Yeah. The rest of them are all batshit crazy. And you can't help but connect. You know, there's no way you can't connect this to Quentin Tarantino. The oh, heavy uh, influence of Tarantino, early Tarantino here. But like I said, at such a hyper exaggerated level, I feel like you know people talk about how Inglorious Bastards is this really exaggerated poppy Tarantino and for me that was a failed version of that this is the one I wish we had seen nah. of that sort of just ridiculously over the top abs- almost to the level of absurdity but with all the Tarantino tropes uh, like I said with that mixture of Get Shorty that there's this whole thing all the way through about being a film buff and loving the history of film and film being the like all these characters who are criminals or like forget about what they're supposed to be doing because they can't stop thinking about being in a movie yeah <laughs> and the cops turn up and go what are you guys doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. We're making a movie. Shut up. No, you're not. You're killing each other. No, we're making, we're killing each other for and, a movie. And making a movie. Uh, this, this is, yeah. Sian uh, uh, Sano for me is one of the most interest, interesting and exciting filmmakers doing the rounds at the moment. I think, you know, he's really pushing so many levels and so many points uh, that great. nobody else is coming. Uh, 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 we were discussing this earlier. Uh, we divide on one point um, that I prefer... Tokyo Tribe to this, yeah. uh, which I think is just you know, that's that's his hip hop street gang musical and is amazing. Uh, I know that's a little bit yeah, you know, it was almost a little bit too rich for your blood that you had like it's, it was like, too it was much. there was a point of exhaustion with the whereas, conceit. Whereas I love the conceit, like it just carried me along, and I, and I think that's kind of the it, it, the only reason this isn't my pick of the week and this is, is because I you know knowing what Sionsono now is moving to and you know, I, I think also the thing is wh- however you feel about the rest of Tokyo Tribe he, he is a much more assured filmmaker yeah he really feels like he you know this I think this is a transition point for him like this is the point where he goes you know I previously have done variations of established genres really really well now I am Sion Sono a guy who does films on absolutely my own terms. Couldn't be more true. This is my pick of the week, though. Yeah. Love this to pieces. It's a Draft House Films, which has a booklet with stills plus film and disc credits. And it uh, has a uh, short comment from James, quote, Barf Callahan on his design for the poster that Alamo Draft House commissioned for the film that is, in fact, included with... The, you know, a smaller version of it, anyway, is included with... Yeah, you're not getting a one-sheet rolled up in this. Yeah, don't don't like, get your hopes up. It's like almost an 11 by 17, it's not a, quite. Yeah. <laughs> um, but great it's package, big, great film. Big enough to frame, that's for sure. Uh, there's also a press conference interview with Sion Sono, but it's like looks like it's filmed on a cell phone. It's not really great. <laughs> Ultimately, this is not something you're getting for the extras, although the poster alone is worth your time. Um yeah, I think this, the, is, this just is wonderful. A, this is an absolute must buy. This, yeah. If you are serious about uh, about your collection and being able to go, let I've got you know, you want a film that you can go, you want to see something crazy and brilliant. I've got something crazy and brilliant for you. Yep, man, the Draft House has been knocking that out with those sort of things lately. Oh yeah, Cheap Thrills was another one like that from them. You're like, you have to have this in your collection. So when someone shows, show me something that's great I've never heard of. Oh. oh. Be careful what you wish for, Just my don't friend. eat beforehand. <laughs> or during. Uh, 
All right, so a film that I got to see, I don't think that you got to see this I, one. I did not. But um, I had heard mixed things about, and then I'm surprised how much I actually really enjoyed. Seattle's favorite son. Is uh, Jimmy, All Is By My Side. It's a 2013 British-Irish drama film about Jimi Hendrix, directed by John Ridley, who did 12 Years a Slave. Huh. Yeah, so that's enough to go like, well, maybe I should check this out. I know when it came at South by Southwest here, it got kind of mixed reviews, and part of the reason for that, I think, was that there's a whole storyline base to this where he is turns into, at one point, a guy who is not afraid to very violently abuse this woman he was dating, which turns out to be completely apocryphal. They did not do enough research. Uh, it was based on the, a biography of Jimmy that was written by Noel, Noel Redding, who was his, his uh, eh. bassist, who apparently hated Jimi Hendrix afterwards oh, yeah. and wrote a lot of just absolutely not true bullshit in the bio as a big middle finger fuck you. <laughs> uh, since the woman in question, Kathy Etchenham, who is being portrayed here by Haley, the lovely Haley Atwell, came out when she saw it and said, this is bullshit. Nothing like that ever happened. Nothing. Jimmy was a gentleman. He was like, yeah, was he mixed up? Yeah, but he wasn't in any way abusive. He was like the sweetest guy I've ever known. It's like, okay. And it's troublesome to have a film about a black celebrity, a black musician, and make him into a wife abuser or a woman abuser. Yeah. That's that's a troublesome aspect they didn't do enough research. It's a troublesome thing to do with any... With anybody, uh, well, true. You know, but, like, it, but in particular, in the particular context of now, yeah, that's that's not. You know, it seems like a like an error because you know the one thing that I have heard about this repeatedly is that uh, Andre Benjamin, aka Andre Three Thousand from, from Outcast, Outcast yeah. is great in this. He I've heard this is. consistently. Having actually seen a lot of Jimi Hendrix footage, big fan. I still think he's arguably the greatest guitarist who's ever lived. Li- living lived when you take all the aspects of what he did, like everything together. Like, he is, he's the best. He was the king. He was the god of the guitar, as far as I'm concerned. And he channels him so exactly, it's almost uncanny watching Benjamin play this role. It's like, holy shit, he is Jimi Hendrix in this. But you've also got Imogen Poots as Linda Keith, who was Keith... Uh, are you, uh, we're, I thought we pacted never to laugh, to giggle like school kids at her last name again. Poots. I can't help it. It's funny. It's hilarious. I, I, you know, Did her manager at no point say, Imogen, love... Change the name. Change the name. Yeah. She's like, no, Poots. Poots, poots it is. <laughs> My family have been Poots for years. What's that smell? I think Imogen pooted. <laughs> uh, uh, but she plays the girlfriend of Keith Richards, who basically discovered Jimi Hendrix, uh, who was playing as a session musician, who was playing with a bunch of bands that were well-known, but he was like stuck in the background, not being able to really be Hendrix. And she kind of convinced him to you know, pull himself out and become his own guy and start, you know, writing his own songs and, and stand out from, you know, the rest, which obviously was a good idea to turn out. Jimmy was very shy, very withdrawn dude. Um, and she's really good in this. You get to see, uh, so, like eventually he meets Haley Atwell, who is a mess of a human being, but a total star fucker. And uh, the, they're clearly not good for each other. But at the same time, he, she is at the very least like what's encouraging him to go on in some ways to keep keep on with this when he's constantly doubting himself um, as it gets to the and this is only two years of his career before before everything goes ridiculously huge. Like it ends before Monterey, which was really the big Boom! Yeah, Jimi Hendrix thing where the whole world knew who he was. Um, and there's 
there's a lot of stuff to really like in this. You're not going to hear any of the classic Hendrix songs because the Hendrix estate is give them the ridiculously stingy about the rights. It's the main reason there hasn't been a Hendrix documentary before this because they did not want to work with anybody on it. They're like, Which nope. shows actually like how much they must have liked Cameron Crowe that they allowed him to use Waterfalls right? in, uh, in uh, singles. Yep, that's yes, exactly. Um, one of my favorite scenes in this, though, is a scene where his manager, who is one of the members of the Animals, who has quit music and now is just being a manager, yeah. uh, basically takes him to a show where Eric Clapton's playing. And Clapton, at that point, was considered to be the god of guitarists. Um, there's a scene even where Hendrix has just gotten to London. And he's driving by like graffiti on the wall that says Clapton is God. And he's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he gets on, you know, like he's the, the manager calls in a favor with Clapton. It's like, we let this guy jam with you. He's just such a big fan and he is a good guitarist. Clapton's like, okay, whatever. Sure. So Hendrix gets up there and just totally uh, like from the first note is fucking Jimi Hendrix. And Clapton is just staring at him. You know, he's, he's jamming with the band, just tearing up the place, and Clapton just quietly unplugs his guitar and walks off stage. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, and then later he's talking, he's talking to his manager, he's like, is he always that good? <laughs> <laughs> like, even Clapton was humbled by what Hendrix could do. So, yeah, I think as a fan of Hendrix, I really enjoyed this. So the performances were great throughout this movie. Um, the music is great. Benjamin just, just nails this, but... It is really troublesome. The, the I mean, this is literally a sequence where he beats repeatedly Haley Atwell with a phone. Yeah. Like, just brutally bashes her in the face with a phone multiple times. You're like, that never fucking happened! Do your research! The parts where they are trying to make him more unlikable don't really sell. And it feels like they're more included for the sake of having more drama than anything else. Because the truth was... At his worst, he was a mess because he didn't know what was going on in real life because he was tripping so hard a lot of the time later yeah. on. But... Which doesn't necessarily make for great uh, drama in a film. But I think overall, this is a pretty good movie. You'll know this. One of my favorite pop facts. Okay. Who was uh, Jimi Hendrix's roadie? I don't remember. I used to know. Lemmy. Lemmy, that's right. Lemmy from Motorhead. Who actually is God. Yeah. That is true. And unkillable. Yes. Yeah, you cannot kill Lemmy. I believe it's his wart that gives him power. He's if, just an extension of the wart. If you point. take the hair out, it, it, he loses like 100 years of his life. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to something you guys probably have heard of. I know we've got a lot of films this week that are a little more obscure. That doesn't necessarily make them bad. No. But more obscure. And that is Fury, the latest David Ayers film that was widely overlooked by audiences. Because this, I thought, was really one of the best movies of the year. Yeah. The fact that, like, Jeremy Davies was overlooked for a Best Supporting Actor nod for this is, uh, I, I just don't understand what happened with that. I mean, seriously. Uh, oh, we just had a flash of power, but we're still recording. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Technology. Yeah. Something happened. The power went, I don't want any part of this. I, I, I am, uh, the electricity went, I am outraged by the fact that Jeremy Davies got overlooked. Yeah, I'm... I was even when we came out of the review for Fury initially in the theater. I was kind of aghast that it seemed like not everybody else was with me at how truly great this film actually is. And to some level, the things I was hearing about it that I thought were like negative were the same type of stuff, like gut reaction stuff I heard to American Sniper, yeah. where it was this sort of like, oh, we're making heroes out of these guys. It's like nobody was saying that when Nine One One started. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the point is these are guys who 
all things considered, would rather not be in the position of being in the worst situation of war imaginable uh, once they've discovered what that actually is. With There's no... It, it's not like the f- war films from the 50s. <laughs> you know? It's all glory well, it's, and it's, wonder. It's kind of like a Sam Fuller movie, movie from the, from the <laughs> Exactly. From the 50s. This like, is them trapped in the grungiest, nastiest, but just flat forward, that's how it is, war uh, in World War Two as a tank crew led by the older, grungier Brad Pitt as uh, Don War Daddy Collier uh, leads this Collier. Gr- yeah leads this group. Uh, so you and the your fancy last name pronunciations to it. This they're week. in France. Yeah. No, they're not. They're in Germany. <laughs> they're in, oh, that's right. They that's are. the whole point. No, of you're film. right. They're in Germany. Hey. <laughs> well, they went through France yes. at some point, presumably. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, the new guy, basically their old assistant, uh, the driver bowgunner Red. We get to see he dies in battle. His replacement is a brand new enlisted army typist. Norman Ellison, who was not prepared to be going out on a tank at all, played by here by L- Logan Lerman, who I thought, well, he did a really good job, is probably the weakest link in the acting ensemble of people here. It's not to say he's bad, it's just everybody else is so good, even... Holy shit, I can't believe I'm saying this. I know. But Shia LaBeouf, who is kind of the best friend of Brad Pitt uh, here as a Boyd Bible swan, who is this overwhelmingly intense dude (laughs) and um he's he's wonderful in this he is he really is michael pena is one of the crew john bernthal who everybody knows as uh was it shane i believe from the walking dead who is quickly turning into one of the most don't take your eye off him character actors great wolf of wall street as well yeah oh yeah is so so good in this um Watching these guys go through their the travails in this tank, where at one point they're like the last tank pushing through Germany. I mean, they are doomed. Yeah. And they know it, but they also know you can't emotionally acknowledge this at all. Yeah. You can't, or you're going to die. You're going to kill yourself by doing this. And this kid... Going like like watching these guys who have just shorn off all their humanity to some level to just be able to do this, and it, it's this question of how much of their humanity have they given up? Yeah, uh, Bernthal's character is basically like, you know what? This and this is the thing that you know you watch some films about war, and I, I was thinking about this earlier. It's like, yeah, you know, I remember when. Um, uh, Thin Red Line and uh, Saving Private Ryan came out around the same time. And I think these the sensibilities of those films spoke to very different people. Yes. I did not like Thin Red Line because I thought it was, you know, basically a tone poem that was kind of like, no, you are... You have moments of violence, but you almost play them for comedy. Yeah. Uh, which I find kind of slightly objectionable. Where Saving Private Ryan, people are like, well, this is gory. It's like, well, yeah. Yeah, well, what do you think? When somebody gets shot... With a fifty cal round, their head falls apart. And this feels like more like Saving Private Ryan, a but lot. without the uh, stylistics of Kubrick. This is even more. Spielberg. I'm sorry, Spielberg. Saving Private Ryan. Sorry, of Spielberg, uh, or even uh, of a uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket, the Kubrick one. Yeah. Also very gritty and brutal and real, but still you very much feel the trappings of the screenplay and what arcs have to happen in it. This feels more matter of fact. In fact, it reminds me of a brilliant men in a tank movie called Lebanon. That Mm. is so totally worth your time seeing a foreign film. Just so, so great. Um, I, 
the moments in here where the humanity does show through though is the are the highlights there's a point where you're really scared that all these guys are going to take these you know civilian german women in this bombed out town and just rape the hell out of them and leave them for dead it leads you to believe they're men capable of this and watching that whole sequence as brad pitt is able to maintain this level of like civility and like be a leader to these men and like, let's not forget where we came from. Let's not become the animals that war makes us a hundred percent is mesmerizing. Yeah. That sequence that is, is great, so good. That is, that is one of the best sequences of last year in any film. I will put that up against anything because you've got a, a powerhouse cast. You have an incredibly tense situation. It is 10 minutes that are as nerve wracking as anything else in this film. Very true. But you know, deeply human. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it does show like, you know, this, the, the kind of the myth of the greatest generation, uh, the really mythical part of it is like, you know, they were all lovely and noble all the way through. No, they saw horrible things being done and they did horrible things because they had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, you know, uh, as obviously done a lot of research for this. This is very accurate about how, and there's actually a couple of, of really good extras on this disc about what it really like was shooting in shooting inside a Sherman tank, which you got five guys stuck in something slightly smaller than a than your average SUV these days. That could not have been easy to, to, to put together. You know, with you know, you you have a shells firing and you have people shooting at you. You know, most of you are going deaf. <laughs> uh, the place stinks. This is a rancid environment. And the, and War Daddy at one point goes, "This is the best home I've ever had. This is the only place I know." And you go like you know what they must have gone through to get to that point. Yeah, all- this is a very brutal and honest film about what you know what happens when you put people in this kind of environment. And it's definitely about the same like in, in terms of like relating to other war pieces. Uh, Band of Brothers comes to mind as well because it's really dealing with that sort of like the connection that's made between people in times of war like that, and how that sometimes is all they have to hold on to. Sam Fuller's Big Red One. Oh, there clear you go. references. I mean, yeah. uh, which is one of those films that is tragically a little bit overlooked. I think because it mm. kind of the, uh, it took them years to find anything other than the bastardized edited version that Fuller hated. Uh, but it's such an influential film for other filmmakers, and I, I will lay pennies to pounds that if you took uh, uh, as to one side and said, "Well, what were the influential films?" Thin Red Line is going to be on the first one. And sorry, Big Red One is going to be on the first one, and it absolutely is in there. This is, a, I mean, there's a couple of moments where he tries for some symbolism that gets a little bit heavy-handed and doesn't yeah. quite work. That's about the only negative thing I can but say yeah, about I, it. This though. is this is a really solid war movie that is not gung ho nonsense, this and it's exciting to yeah. watch. Like edge of your seat at points, exciting to watch. And they've made this a really valuable Blu-ray to get with all the bonus features they've shoved into this. A ton of deleted scenes, uh, a look at like the auth- authenticity of it, how they met with actual veterans who must have been just barely alive at this point. But <laughs> there are there aren't many yeah. of them left. Yeah. Uh, the, the the director's combat journal that's basically just following David Ayer around specifically. Uh, the real men inside the Shermans of peace looking at several World War II veterans discussing their experiences in the war. And like you said, that whole uh, great name piece, Taming the Beasts, How to Drive, Fire, and Shoot Inside a 30-Ton Tank. <laughs> I did love the fact that they, yeah, they clearly researched what tank battles were actually like, which off, which is often long-range and you don't know what's going on. And then suddenly, at really, really close quarters and desperately pinwheeling around each other at almost you know, cannon barrel length, Trying to get to the one point of weakness in their armor, and I think you know, this is I, this is a, a stellar film 
that I don't think got the appreciation it deserved. And I think it's a little disappointing. I think hopefully it will find that on home release. I really hope so, too, because I agree with you 100%. Well, a film that just got a release that is couldn't be more different <laughs> than Fury, that's instead about war, is about peace is an inner piece at that, is The Razor's Edge. Now, this is a 1946 film based off a very popular 1944 novel by W. Somerset Maugham. Maugham? 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 Really? Somerset Maugham. Maugham? Maugham. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Not to be confused with, there was a uh, uh, an adaptation of this in the 80s starring Bill Murray. Yes, because this was Bill Murray's favorite movie. Yes. Uh, there would be no Ghostbusters with Bill Murray, if his re- really mediocre remake of this film hadn't been made, that was the deal. He'd get the funding for that film if he agreed to star in Ghostbusters. Yeah. So, hey, either way, good thing, right? Yep. But an interesting context to watching this film is the idea, well, what is it? Bill Murray's such a unique personality, such an odd fellow, the way he goes about life, his philosophy of things. What about this film really appealed to him? What was it that was spoke to a young Bill Murray so strongly in this film? And I, that's certainly in really interesting context to bring into this now. Um, I got a lot out of it based on that alone. But regardless, this is a really great film starring superstars like Tyrone Power, Gene Tierney, John Payne, Ann Baxter, Clifton Webb, Herbert Marshall. I mean, it is uh, 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 Elsa Lancaster. Yeah. Um, and the idea is it's about Larry uh, Durrell, who is this, who was a pilot in World War One. He it changed his whole perspective on everything. And this is well past that. He's back in, in town and, in fact, is like very involved with the young, well-to-do woman in town who wants him to get his priorities straight and get a job in banking and do all that stuff because she wants to have the, you know, to be a princess. And she is a, seems like a nice enough lady and there's real love and he truly loves her, but ultimately he can't do what she wants. He can't because... He's missing something in life. He knows there's something, a hole in him. He just can't put his finger on exactly what it is, but he's not going to be happy until he's explored and found what that thing is. Uh, and it is really the story of him uh, uh, going out and finding that, going to like, you know, India and Tibet and places like that to find this thing. What is. What is life? Asking these really big philosophical questions. There's this great exchange at one point with somebody where uh, they're like going, yeah, you know what? People have been asking those thousands of years and nobody's come up with answers for these yet. And he's like, yeah, but don't you think there's a good reason why people have been looking for these things for thousands of years? Yeah. You know, and I think like this is certainly a film. Anybody I know who loves traveling and just obsessive travelers and I've known several over the years, this is a movie you really should have seen by now first off. Cause it is that sort of looking without for the, for the within type of story. But it's shocking me how many movies have been made since that have tried to capture this exact same type of themes that have failed miserably, have just not done it at all. And this one just, it nails it so perfectly. I don't know how you could do it any better. Yeah. It was like after this, it's like, well, it's been done. And you got to remember, this was an extraordinarily daring novel and book. I mean, these are... These For the are, time, especially. Particularly because Mom wrote... The, the, the book was published in uh, 1944. So at the peak of World War II, that he basically has a character who goes, what I went through in World War I was terrible. Um, 
And in you know the film was released in 1946, so you know this is undercutting the triumphalism that everybody, ta- everybody thinks about was going on at that point. And for Mormon to say we have to look beyond, you know, the novel says we have to look beyond what we've been through in this war and wonder where we're going next. We can't, we you know there is a, there is something we have to do beyond this. And we have to avoid a third great war because yeah. this is what we're going to head for. And for the film to even be made is is extraordinarily daring. Oh yeah, and it's. By the end, you're kind of startled it got made at all because this is no, by no means conventional. Uh, no movies are about what this movie was about at this time. No. I mean, it really is a philosophy movie. And watching, like, meanwhile, all these other people in his life who thought that, you know, they were doing what society told them to do and what you're supposed to do and the, the right way to go about things to be part of, you know, civilized society are watching their own lives fall apart and be incredibly unhappy. Watching the woman he was in love with turn into this horrible person and make some truly terrible decisions along the way. It's kind of mesmerizing. It's it's a long film. It's 145 minutes, but I was never bored for a second watching this. A lot of that has to do with the really intense performances across the board with uh, these characters. Um, uh, Elliot uh, Templeton is the lead character, I believe. Uh, Clifton Webb, is that correct? Yep. Okay. Uh, and he is just... You can't take your eyes off him for a second in this. He's so intense. Really love this movie. Um, I'm sad I, it took me so long to watch this. It's not going to be for everyone. Maybe it's going to take kind of an older perspective to look at this. This is definitely a film for adults. Yes. <laughs> no question. Uh, a very uh, thinking movie. But uh, this Fox re-release of this comes with a commentary uh, through some uh, critics who are talking about, like, you know, the production level details of the production, and of course, a old newsreel footage, uh, including that of the writer. Pate News presents, <laughs> including stuff with the writer, and the writer actually appears in the movie briefly as well. All right, well, let's move on to what I think is Richard's pick of the week. It is, and not mine. No, because <laughs> I didn't like it anywhere near as much as you did. But I see what you're talking about when you say you like it as much as you did. Is Open Windows. This is the latest film from, uh, what's his name? The Fantastic Fest mascot. Nacho um, Vigalando. Nacho Vigalando. Fantastic Fest's own imp of the perverse. If you haven't been dry humped into screening by by uh, Nacho, you probably haven't been at Fantastic Fest. That, that That's very true. Yeah, he has gotten to that point where literally he could walk around the whole festival the whole time naked, and everyone would just go, oh, oh it's Nacho. Nacho. I, uh, last year, when when they were still on the building site, everybody was slightly amazed we didn't have to get him down from a crane at any point. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, this is... Um, Nacho made his, made his name with science fi- with a science fiction film. Uh, you know, it, Time Crimes is a straight sci-fi film. Yes. Um, then the follow-up, which weirdly kind of disappeared a little bit, extraterrestrial. It wasn't very good. I, it was fun, but it wasn't great. Right. He had a bit of a sophomore slump. Um, this is his first English-language film. Um, it is Nacho yet again playing with some interesting concepts. Grabbing another Fantastic Fest regular for his lead, Elijah yes, Wood. Elijah, Elijah Wood, who... Uh, and a lot of large chunks of this were actually shot in Austin. Yeah. Uh, some of it is, if you know Austin really well, you'll go, that's not Austin, that's because <laughs> it was Barcelona. Because he had to do some <laughs> stuff there, because he had a limited budget. Um, and the basic plot is that uh, uh, Elijah Wood plays this guy called Nick, who is uh, a massive fan uh, of Jill Goddard, uh, played by Sasha Gray, uh, famous for Entourage. 
and, and nothing uh, the else. girlfriend experience and nothing else <laughs> um who is you know this this actress in this fra- in this kind of weird science fiction franchise and he's been invited to interview her at the at the first screening of her new film but then it turns out he's not been invited at all and there's been this huge mix-up and she doesn't know anything about it and then this mysterious guy on the phone tells him was like well you know look on your computer and oh somehow they've managed to activate her cell phone so he can see what's going on on her cell phone and use her camera. Well, this is the MacGuffin of the entire film. It is all shown on a laptop screen, which, by the way, it has the world's fastest internet connection. Startling. What hotel are you at? (laughs) (laughs) Because I've never been able to even get... Because I've tried to uh, download Sasha Grey movies in a hotel before. Uh, and for reasons, uh, and I, it's never been that fast. I would list her all her other titles, but it's just such a big mouthful. I can't. Oh, what? pardon yourself. Um, this is this is basically I got egg a on my face very on that bizarre <laughs> techno thriller that involves uh, the questions of fame, the questions of of internet privacy, of hacker groups. It's completely berserk. It's completely baroque. Um, it uh, the plot makes has huge glaring holes of logic in there. Almost every five minutes, there is something that makes you go, "What? How could that possibly?" That doesn't make sense. Yeah. However, I think that Nacho's sense of style, I think that uh, you know his choice of Elijah Wood, who you know I, I think few people do every man quite so well as yeah, he? he's he's definitely got a uh, perfect skin as well. Yeah, absolutely perfect skin. And he Lovely. looks exactly the same he did when he was like eight. Lovely man. <laughs> um, I think it, it, you know, the deliberate casting of Sasha Gray as a as a celebrity who everybody's been trying to get pictures of her topless, uh, which considering her career, yeah. But then you tie that in with the Sony hack, and suddenly this film actually gets more relevant. I think as as time goes on, yes, yeah, uh, stuff that's happened since it was made. Yeah. The first time I saw this, I kind of liked it. I was interested by it. Uh, the second time I saw it, I really was fascinated by it. And the third time I've seen it, you know, this for me is just a, a keeper. I think it's Nacho. Yeah, I, like he probably needs somebody to sit over his shoulder and go, bad Nacho, you need a plot that makes sense. But, yeah, this, which particularly yes. after Time Crimes, which ha- it was one of the few films with absolutely watertight temporal mechanics. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you know, that thing is... is yeah, I mean, that film is so tight you could b- bounce a nick off of it. And this is the but, antithesis of that. Yeah. But this is him exploring style, taking question, you know, how technology in his alternate universe works to create some really fantastic visuals. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, a, there's a chase sequence at the end with multiple ball cameras hidden. And when he starts to pull this all together into the final sequence, which I think is, is visually magical. No, I I agree. I think great use of um, uh, uh, Ghost Rider by Suicide all the way through. Here's the thing: <laughs> this is a fun, fast-paced movie that is visually really daring. That's trying stuff that that like just now we saw the trailers to apparently a horror film that's coming out shortly that's using the same mechanic. I forget what it's called. You you may have seen it as well, where it's a horror film that's entirely in a chat room, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah well, I just saw a dreadful cam to cam. Uh, which uh, which is not good, but um, it's not good. Uh, but and should have had something something near this level. I mean, spine. visually, in terms and in terms of pacing, the mechanic you'll never be irritated by the fact that the 
this is all taking place on a computer watching open windows as multiple windows are opening and we uh, with video and audio and what have you. It works on that level. It Nacho desperately needed, as you said, the say no person in the script writing format because the holes come so fast and furious, the suspension of disbelief that this takes to get through without leaving, to me, a sour taste in your mouth by the end was just un- incalculable how high it had to be I, to I get don't know, to the end. I, 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 I look at this as something like, uh, you know, Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Bomb. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going into this looking for logic. And I, I, I actually talked to Nacho about this um, uh, before it, it showed at Sapphire last year. Uh, and he said, you know, the technology is not real. None of this is real. Right. Because if I made it real... A, everybody would go, well, you've left glaring holes. There's very few films that actually bother having that level of, of technical accuracy. True. Like, I and think- he really said, I'm not even going to try for it because what I want to do is have my kind of like, you know, parallel reality technology that you that does what I need it to do for the narrative, for the effects I want it to produce, for the, for the visuals I want to create. And I, I, you know, I stand by that. Uh, and, and I, th- you know, I, I admire him for that because this is, you know, it's yet another gutsy film from Nacho. And I, th- I really think this is, yeah, I, I was not a huge fan of it first time. I did find some of the stuff that you found annoying highly annoying, but this really has grown on me, and it's something I can go back to. Not least because the the playfulness of, of you know, dealing with, and, and actually this this sequence where uh, Sasha Gray is being forced to basically perform in front of a webcam. Is really awkward and uncomfortable. I got, I got a hand. And that is to, really fascinating I, for him to take it to that place. I got to hand it to Sasha Gray. She has really gotten better as an actress. Yeah. Um, I thought the girlfriend experience was underwhelming. I didn't think she was bad in it, but it was. Soderbergh can be too Soderbergh y at times. Yeah. At, to, at the expense of his actors. When he's at his best, it's the best stuff, that, the best director any actor could hope to work for, work with. Uh, the girlfriend experience was just. A mess, I thought, ultimately. And you couldn't really tell how you felt about Sasha Gray. Here, she has to pull off a lot of different emotions, and she does it. Yeah. She she is convincing this part. Plus, you do, in fact, get to see her naked, and that's always nice. Um, I just, like I said, I really thought, like, the, the, the suspension disbelief wasn't just, is that technically possible? It's, like, things that have to do with the amount of time it took to get places. It has to do with decisions characters would make it'd be the plausibility that anybody planning out something enough ahead of time could account for all the factors involved for any of this stuff to work it, the holes go above and beyond what he's claiming like i was full aware i was doing and they did bug me i could not get all the way into this but i will say there's no question this is entertaining just go into it knowing that you're going it's it's, it's not set in the real world it's in a any fairy level tale. it is it's, completely it is a, a fairy techno tale. fairy tale um this also st- had appearances by Scott Weinberg, one of our uh, fellow critics, who uh, is pretty well known. Hi, Scott. Uh, go on his Twitter page. He never stops talking. Actually, he's got a he, he's he's got a lot of fires in the iron these days. So it, he, you know, fires no in the long- iron. Yes, uh, he. he <laughs> I like so that. it's no longer you can tell he's gone to bed because. Uh, There's no Twitter for four off. hours. Yeah, he's actually like he's an extremely busy and very successful guy. And, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Congratulations to you, Scott. I uh, absolutely agree, 100. percent We Is miss it... you. Come back to Austin a bit more often. We yeah. do miss you. Well, he was living here for like a year, and then he gave up and went back home. I think yeah. he missed his cats. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, but the main extra on the disc is the making of Open Windows, 16-minute featurette, which uh, is, is sort of a, a stylish in and of itself look at how they did all the special effects mainly. You know, just piecing together all the green screen and everything, which is definitely interesting because you do ask yourself as you're watching it multiple times, wow, I wonder how they got that. All right, moving on to another title that I was disappointed in as well, but I don't think anybody else liked it, so I'm not that worried about uh, the the, the convention, is Justice League Throne of Atlantis. Now, I know what you're going to say, Chris. You've always been a shit talker about Aquaman. You've always been the guy who, along with Robot Chicken... makes fun of how lame Aquaman is. And even I conceded that there came a point in Aquaman comics, especially with uh, uh, the, I think it was the new, uh, the new 52 reboot. The first couple issues of that were like, okay, this is the Aquaman I wanted to see. This Aquaman is actually pretty cool. Justice League Throne of Atlantis Aquaman, which should have just been an Aquaman film. The Justice League is so tertiary. It's ridiculous here is a boring, by-the-numbers bio-of-origin story for Aquaman that we've already seen, or at least already know well enough, that was never that great in the first place. Isn't really trying anything new. All it wants to do is, in the new 52 universe, which now the animated films, animated sector for DC has been forced to say, okay, you all, it all has to be new 52 continuity. Uh, it's them finishing the roster for the Justice League, basically, for their Justice League. And it feels totally unnecessary. The animation looks unfinished. The voice acting, while you've got a lot of quality people doing the voices in here that we've seen before, including Nathan Fillion playing Green Lantern, which is how it always should be, it, there are points that felt like they just hadn't even finished editing it. There's uncomfortable gaps between dialogue pieces. There's uh, jokes that are so startlingly unfunny they just thud to the ground and leave an echo. Um It's just, this may be the worst of the DC animated films I've seen. And like I said, that's not just coming as somebody from somebody who, like, is kind of dismissive of Aquaman. I think you can make a good Aquaman film. But this story with Arthur Curry discovering his actual origin, that he is a prince of Atlantis and having to fight uh, Black Manta and, uh, oh God, what's his name? King of the Ocean or whatever it is. Ocean Master. (laughs) Ocean Master, who is a... uh, Aquaman is the worst villains, I swear to God. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Flash's Rogue's Gallery is fairly crap. But uh, Rogue's Gallery works, works because they all work together, and there's a comedy aspect to it all that's always there. There's always a funny aspect to the Rogue's uh... Gallery. Like, the, the Aquaman guy's not so much. Ocean Master is ultimately his, his half-brother who is plotting to become king of Atlantis because the queen, Aquaman's mom, uh, who had him with a human, wants nothing to do with war against the surface dwellers. She's like, no, why would we even do that? That makes no sense. Not good enough for Ocean Master who's plotting with Black Mantis to take over the throne and declare war on the surface world, which he must not know the Justice League exists. No, otherwise it seems like a terrible like, plan. Yeah, terrible plan. Terrible plan. <laughs> yeah, it's just, this is just, just... poop in the ocean. This is just really... Doll. You know, I'm sorry, there's only one King of Atlantis in comics that I care about, and that's Namor, the world's biggest asshole, who has been portrayed increasingly fun as a total ass over at Marvel. Oh, agreed. Um, and, you know, he said his most, he's fun because he is such a prick, he's a hero when he has to be. <laughs> he's a hero when his, when his aims coincidentally 
uh, intersect with what ha- what it takes to be a good guy. And just like by sheer accident. And Aquaman at its best, which has been in the last 10 years or so, is when they're basically cribbing from Namor. When yeah. they've turned him into more of a sort of, fuck you, what does that have to do with me and my people? The uh, This is rather tragic because, uh, do you remember X-Play uh, on G4, their video game review show? Oh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, Morgan, Morgan Webb, Viva. Um, and, yeah, and Adam Sessler, the great Adam Sessler. Uh, yeah, if you get a chance, go back and watch some of that show. Uh, they, <laughs> the worst reviewed game ever that they actually said, we've, we reviewed stuff that's worse, but it was so bad it was clearly not a fully formed game. It was shovelware that had been dropped halfway through development. <laughs> the worst reviewed game they ever did was the Aquaman game. And they, I didn't they even actually, know there was an Aquaman game. Uh, yeah, they actually named their award ceremony the Golden Mullets after, after the badly animated... <laughs> That's Mullet funny. on it. You know, it's it's Aquaman. It can't be like any worse than he, Superman sixty four. Oh, Fowers. Jesus, because that was the worst it, thing it, I ever played. Basically, imagine him swimming around Atlantis in three D, but it's huge and there's nothing else to interact with apart from occasionally you see like one generic villain in the distance, and you have to swim after them and like throw a cod at them or something. Throw a cod at them. Okay, fair enough. I, this uh, really seems like it, it, the only reason you might want this is is actually the extras. Yeah, and I, that's for the even the worst of the DC animated universe titles. The extras are usually worth having in your collection if you are a big comics fan. Uh, for instance, the villains of the deep. The only problem with it is twelve minutes long. It should have been longer. Which is like like all these always have like a really in depth history and analysis of the character. In this case, about Aquaman's nemesis, uh, looking at where they came from and their archetypes. Those things are always interesting, and it actually is. Interesting interesting here is like 30 minutes on scoring it which is much longer than it needs to be i'm really not sure there's a what they call a like you remember when these things all came with the shorts yeah right and you were like that's awesome you get a backup short that's like nine minutes long or something well this one has like a 45 second short that you have to watch four times with robin and nightwing that is just a deleted sequence from this, but they try and act like it's a short and you have to watch it three times first with the director of it talking over it. And then they show it without that. And you're like, that sounds awesome. And the point of that was originally to lead into the next one that's coming out, which is Batman versus Robin, which is very much a sequel directly to son of Batman with Damian Wayne, Batman's son with Talia al Ghul and Batman trying to work it out and bringing in uh, as there's a whole sneak peek on here, uh, aspects of the court of owls rather than just i don't know why they didn't just do the court of owls which is a wonderful run on batman but instead they just crib bits and pieces of it and mix it into here i don't know that uh, one's make, got me just, going just a little fine marvel and have done with this nonsense right yep anyway uh so yeah this is a mess maybe the messiest of these yet i'm a little worried about what's going on with dc animated but Hey, I know I'm still going to watch them anyway. Who am they I They let kidding? Bruce Tim go. It's all gone downhill since then. <laughs> all right. Next up is a odd little Spanish film called Mas Negro Que La Noche. <sighs> Dearie me. This is, um, hmm. it's a movie that it's got movie. made and it came out in 2014. It is a remake of a 1975 pivotal, although I've never seen it, but every, you know, everything I've read about it says that it's really super important. Uh, Mexican gothic horror. Uh, you know, it, it is one of the most stereotypical 
plot lines ever. This is trope-tastic. It's like, four friends spend the night. Spend four, some, four hot chick friends. Four hot chick friends spend some time in a, in, a, in a house that's been left to one of them by her old aunt. And crazy things start happening. And they start dying. And there's a cat. The original one, I had a chance to watch the trailer. And it had this kind of wonderful... 70s sleaze aspect to it that actually was really fascinating uh, and I really want to go and watch the whole thing now um, you know Mexican horror in the, in the 60s and 70s great under, great overlooked uh, uh, catalogue there's some really amazing stuff came out uh, during that period that nobody's seen Yeah, uh, and I really recommend that you try and hunt down some of it because some of it's really great and creepy um, for some unknown reason uh, a Spanish studio d- decided to remake this i mean i guess uh, i can see why they were i mean there's certainly like they look at there's a lot of the creepy gothic manor houses coming out of spain right like i mean that's not under guillermo de toro started a whole cottage industry of those things lately and this is one of those only with no restraint of any kind and not much in the way of talent in the terms of writing um these girls not one of them seems to have any acting chops whatsoever. No. They seem more no. like porn stars than they do proper actresses. And I don't mean in the Sasha Gray sense. I mean, uh, just flat out, I just got started in the industry. Um, and it just gets more tasteless as it goes on. You know, at first I was like, okay, this might get good. I, I was buying into it for a while. But I got to admit, and I know this is my proclivities for cats, there's a sequence where one of these girls brutally drowns this cat. And I was like, did we really need to watch this whole thing play out? Was that really necessary? Well, in defense, the cat had just killed her ferret. We, well, maybe. No. Don't go blaming the cat. We no, didn't see it on screen. It, Besides ferrets, have you ever met a ferret? They they are kind of bitey. Yeah, they need to die. <laughs> no, no, they don't. They don't need to die. But they probably shouldn't be pets. Send your letters too. No, they they probably they're not the best pets in the world. Sorry, folks who love their ferrets. I just have never had terribly positive experiences with the little rat creatures. In fact, rats are better pets than ferrets. I found. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. This just gets so silly, and the end of it is just ridiculously goofy. And then, oh my god! And you can like, and telegraphed. Uh, so far ahead. this movie goes most of the way without having to deal with really much in the way of effects it's all like sort of like oh what was that we didn't see anything but or we saw something in the distance and then at the end it, th- it turns into the generic CG fest in some ways and it's so bad yeah oh my god it's like the worst horror movie CG you have ever seen and this thing is 110 minutes long and it oh, feels Jesus. every month this, this is a film that I think if it, it, it clocked in somewhere around 90 I you know which I think is all this kind of film really has any business being yeah um then yeah at, it, it's at most disposable you know horror um you know i this is this has all the ingredients for something fun and botches it uh, consistently. every turn there's no tension uh the scares aren't very good no nope. uh nope. The, the ending is is you know you will see if you don't see what the ending is by the end of the the second act then you know you probably haven't been paying attention um Honestly, uh, save your money and go buy Housebound instead, which is a which is great so great <laughs> New Zealand uh, a gothic uh, uh, maybe maybe not ghost story uh, set in a suburban house. 
Yeah. And it does everything that a gothic tale should do so much better than this. This yeah. is this is highly disappointing. However, I do actually now want to go and see the original. This, yeah, it did make me wonder, you know, why would you remake, why would you, anything that came from this be you oh, want to be involved uh, with? Uh, and by the like, way, this, is, this was the first uh, Mexican film shot in 3D and... Uh, and it's really, in 2D, and it's really I have irritating. No idea what you would possibly, what possibly could be added to this by shooting I don't, in 3D. Nothing. Yeah. It, well, more irritation. Yeah, yeah, is what what's added to it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're moving on to uh, the end of a television show that had a really powerful, great first season, and not just kind of meh second season, and that is The Bridge on FX. Now, this is based on a, I want to say Swedish. Yeah, Danish-Swedish television series of the same name, only in Swedish. Um, And the idea is there are two police detectives. One's Mexican, uh, played by uh, Damien Bashir, and one is uh, from the United States, played by Diane Kruger. And she's got very severe Asperger's. She was sort of adopted uh, by Ted Levine, who plays a jaded El Paso cop, and... uh, when basically her parents were already dead, her sister who was taking care of her was killed by a serial killer and it, you know, damaged her severely more so than she already was. And he sort of, by taking her under her wing and being the one who caught this guy inspired her to be a cop herself. I don't know who the hell hires somebody with as severe emotional problems and Asperger's as this girl has to be a police detective. Yeah. How does she get to detective? (laughs) But by getting, well, basically it's a middle of nowhere police department that generally speaking, it doesn't look like much ever happens in. Wait, 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 middle of nowhere police department. It's El Paso. Well, the way it looks on the, on the, in the show. It's El Paso. Okay. It's a major city. The way it looks in the show, it feels like bumfuck nowhere. Well, I mean, there is certain element that, but it's El Paso. It's actually quite a big place. <laughs> but in the first ones, there's a serial killer that's that's killing girls and leaving them in half, where half is in the United States and half is in uh, Mexico. And they had them down together, and there's lots of other characters that appear in the thing. Uh, Annabeth Gish as a wealthy widow uh, whose uh, husband dies, and she gets involved in drug trafficking. And Matthew Lillard as a El Paso Times reporter who's severe alcoholic and drug addict, but nonetheless has got his teeth onto a really good story. There's lots of these weird side characters, the most interesting being Thomas M. Wright, an actor I'm definitely going to be paying more attention to now, is Stephen Linder, this very, like, a sling blade kind of guy who is, you keep thinking, is a complete psycho, but the truth is he's a gentleman from a different time. Ah. You know, very archaic ideas of, of, of noble, what nobility is and protection of woman. He is a really, truly fascinating character. And the best thing about season two is some of the stuff that they do with him. The actual crime that's going on, which has to do with a, a drug lord uh, criminal that the Mexican detective has ties that he cannot escape to, like, like, favors that he owes and so when investigating a new series of crimes has to keep his mouth shut about what he actually knows that should be interesting it never really is and they also have diane kruger who was really fascinating in the first season with the way she was having to deal with her asperger's and trying to communicate with people it's actually a really interesting part of the first season here it's all but ignored it's almost like she doesn't even have it anymore in the second season. And I was like, one of the primary things that made the first season so good is just altogether gone. It sounds really disappointing because, I mean, this is a great, you know, it's a great setup. Yeah. 
you know, it's something that I, I know a lot of people like the first season an awful lot. It's something I, I, I promised myself I need to go and watch. Uh, and you know, the 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 question of policing across the Texas Mexico border is a really really vital one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a little disappointed that it sounds like it uh, it, it does some shark jumping. Uh, it definitely does. It's not bad. It's just nothing special. Yeah. And the first season genuinely was. And it's a shame. And I'm not surprised it got canceled after this. It's just the only really interesting stuff happening in this season is with Stephen Linder, the, the, the archaic nobility guy. Who, like I said, it's worth watching just to see his performance. It's so interesting. But they still, it's one of those, like, all the other characters, there's no reason for them to be in this season at all. Like there's why are you even Matthew here? Lillard is is you know a you know just a really nice guy. Uh, and I've B, heard that. I think he's a, a, a stronger actor than people give him credit for. Uh, so yeah, it's a bit of a shame if they don't take advantage of that. Well, okay, that's. I'm sorry that that ended the way it did. Watch the first season; well worth it. Second season you can skip. Our last title we're going to review today is not our giveaway. We'll get to that. We in a will minute. get to that in a moment. Uh, but it is the Stephen King adaptation, Big Driver. Now I know you're asking yourself, <laughs> wait a minute. There's a Stephen King adaptation I didn't hear about. How did I? How did I miss a, a Stephen King film that came? Should out? I tell them? Should you, I tell you them? You go ahead and tell them. It is courtesy of my current favorite studio. This is a Lifetime movie. That's yes, right. Yes, the Lifetime Network does a Stephen King adaptation. Uh, how the fuck did that happen? How does this? How does this come to pass? How is it not a complete disaster? Quick answer, it kind of is. It kind of is. Uh, now, not to the degree... That some of the previously remarked upon and reviewed Lifetime movies were. In fact, by that, that if, if that was the bar that we're going to hold up, this is Citizen King. This is a fucking masterpiece by comparison. <laughs> it's uh, th- This is very clearly... Uh, Stephen King was working through some of the issues um, that he uh, that he had um, after he got hit by a car. He's been working through those issues for like 30 years. I Come know. on. That is, I, I still always go back to the, uh, the family, guy. family Guy sketch where <laughs> no, Brian, I'm Dean Koontz. <laughs> Brian, yeah, Brian knocks him over. Are you Stephen King? Like, no, I'm Dean R. Koontz. And he really reverses over him three or four times. So, Dean, you had, oh, you had Phantoms. That was it. Poor Dean. should have just finished after poor that. Dean. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms, yeah. Uh, yo. Uh, Maria Bello, who I... You know, God, I don't think I've seen her in anything since The Cooler. It's been a while. And she is one of those performances, I think, that um, pretty much always delivers a really solid performance. And I think the strongest thing about this film is that she's in it playing the lead. Yeah. She plays a uh, a mystery writer, Mm, based on, um, (laughs) who writes these kind of like, oh, adorable old ladies who who solve crimes. Isn't it cute and sweet? Um, and she gets invited to this small town to you know to read a story to the local local uh, book group and sign books. And on the way home, she's told, "Oh, take the scenic route." Uh, she does and manages to run over some wood with nails in it. Blows her tire out. Nice guy stops. He's a big lad. She goes, oh, you know, you know, help me get this. And he goes, oh yeah, absolutely delightful. Then he drags her to a a, a shed repeatedly rapes her uh, and leaves her for dead in a charming lifetime yeah, movie like, experience 
okay, Stephen, you like uh, this is kind of bleak, even by your standard. Yeah. Uh, and then she decide. Then she crawls out of the tube, goes home, buys a gun, and goes to get her revenge. Now let's not forget. She- well, this, she- but this is this is the 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 interesting gimmick here is that you increasingly realize she may be mad before anything started. Yeah. The, the, you know, uh, and King is obviously playing with some interesting ideas about, well, I write all this horrific stuff. Uh, would I be capable of any of it? She's clearly nuts. Yeah, and she, she sees ta- the characters and communicates with them yeah. from her popular series of books that she writes, which are a bunch of old biddies in a knitting circle that solve crimes. Who are just like, go kill them all. Uh, she, <laughs> oh, she re- her closest relationship is with um, uh, her GPS that talks to her and holds conversations with her and goes, you, sh- you, may- you don't want to do that, Dave. Um, I mean, you get Olympia Dukakis as one of her hallucinatorial biddies, so yeah. that's kind of cool. There's, you know... Uh, and a weird appearance by Joan Jett. Yeah, very small, but 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 uh, weird appearance. And Dowd, who has become the queen of television lately, of like, oh my god, it's that lady. I love that lady. Yeah. Played in second season of Justified, still to my mind the greatest villain uh, other than uh, a Walton Goggins' character in the history of that show. This is so good. She plays a, like a, a big fan of the books who ends up having a more nefarious turn later on in the story. It's Stephen King's I Spit on Your Grave. Yes. First off, make no mistake. And a lot of people were... A lot of critics were really disturbed by the very seemingly flat message of, like, if you rape someone, you deserve to be tortured and murdered. End of story. And that is disturbing. I don't think that's all that's going on here at all. I just think the film is so poorly made that that's all you can detect from it. Yeah. Yeah, this is... There should have been a lot more to this. You know, you have Stephen King, you've got a a really strong cast. Maria Bella is actually really good in this. She's very good in this. But this is so flat and flavorless and weird. And it's final proof that uh, the Lifetime Network is a a very strange entity. You know, I don't know who watches it. Uh, Because they are consistently handing out stuff that would make most giallo directors go really this material's a bit strong i mean it is <laughs> rape and incest and you know drug abuse and poisoning yeah, and wouldn't dead a lifetime network start out being about makeup and puppies yeah no this this would be about you know testing makeup on puppies now it's like this is a <laughs> this is i, I don't know the, you know i i am okay with pretty extreme horror of course uh you know I, but you know I, I love a lot of the work that comes out of the guys from uh, Unearthed, you know, who are releasing the American Guinea Pig, the American Reboot of the Guinea Pig series. You know, I didn't I'm know like, that was happening. I, a lot of, uh, you know, I, I'm really fascinated by a lot of their work. But somehow the stuff that Lifetime is doing actually makes me a little bit queasy. And I'm not sure what it is, but I just think there's like this weird... They, they make these really unpleasant films and don't realize they're unpleasant. Yeah, I think that's that's it exactly. I don't I don't think they ever understand the material. Yeah. All they see is the tags of stuff that they think that is clearly must be doing better for them doing this kind of weird harsh material lately and they don't have any idea how to handle it. You can and as Stephen King adaptations go, you can't even like this ironically in a maximum overdrive way. This is just flat out it's a bad adaptation of you know a lesser king i i don't know how they got the rights to this this is really just 
Uh, and this director, Mikhail Salomon, Salomon, I don't know, did a uh, Hard Rain. Oh, great! Do you remember that terrible Christian Slater Morgan Freeman film? <laughs> and a Far Off Place in 1993, which I never saw, uh, with Reese Witherspoon. Uh, and a bunch of other people. A very uh, young Reese Witherspoon, he yeah. must have been. Uh, but he's mainly a television director, um, uh, has done a lot of cinematography for stuff like Salem's Lot, uh, uh, Alias, worked on Band of Brothers. But as a director, yeah, not so talented. No, this is, this is bland I, I think, and did he do the Coma remake here? I think, it, which is... Yeah. Uh, yep, and it was exactly the same problem with the Coma television remake. It was like, this has no feeling of authenticity to it whatsoever. It is just cold and just left me cold. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame, because I actually was hoping this was going to be the movie that was going to turn Lifetime around. (sighs) Wouldn't it be great if suddenly they turned into a great network, though? Yeah. I mean, I actually really like their Witches show. So... I think the only question now is, do we do the letterbox first? Or do we do the giveaway first? Well, I think we do the letterbox Let's do the letterbox first. first. And let's, uh, as soon as the internet starts working, we will uh, do... The letterbox. You've got mail. There's only a few, so we're just going to go through them real fast. Michael Scally says, thoughts on the Interstellar 4 teaser? Oh, that's a bit harsh. What? What? I don't the the Fantastic it. Four. Oh. Yeah, I still don't get all the hate for it. I think, uh, it's, I think it, uh, the only problem I have with it at all is that Fantastic Four is kind of supposed to be funny, but it's obviously a really different take on it. I see no reason why it can't end up And being I love Chronicle. I so, love you know, uh, Chronicle. I will, get, I, I will give Josh Trank uh, a lot of leeway on this. Um, you know... I think it's hard to do the classic Fantastic Four as was. This seems to be much more a, a, a reboot of, uh, well, an adaptation of uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm big, you know, like I said, I think Chronicles a great film. I'm, I'm gonna, you know, give give this a lot of leeway because it's, yeah, I think they're gonna have to make a lot. Of, they are making a lot of changes. I think they're they're okay with that. I think that the Human Torch looks really good. I think he does. I too. think the thing looks excellent. Yeah, what we've uh, seen though, as little as we've seen so far, I I don't have any real complaints other than I guess I was expecting something different. But so what? It's Josh Trank. Why would you even talk shit about Josh Trank after Chronicle? Give him a chance to fuck up before you decide that he's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Neil Kelly says, what are your favorite post-credit Easter eggs? And you can't choose from the Marvel films. I'm going to go with Evil Dead, the remake, because after all that, which I really did enjoy, having getting to see a second or two of Bruce Campbell as Ash was nice. Yeah. That was a, a nice little Easter egg for the fans there. Oh. Um... You know what? <laughs> fuck you, because I know what you're going to say, but fuck you right now. Uh, oh, boy. Here we go. End of the Phantom Menace. That tiny, oh, for God's The sakes. tiny little moment where you hear the hear Vader's breath at the end of the uh, end of the score, and you just have that moment, and you know, yeah, okay, we know what's coming. We know what's coming down the pipe. And I, I love that. It's still a beautiful little moment for me. Screw you. I don't care. <laughs> you should, I'm, I wish I'm you guys could this. see the face I'm making right now. You know what? It I'm looks gonna, like we just smelled Vader's breath. You, <laughs> I, I'm going to force you to do a commentary with me for, for Phantom Menace sometime. Only if you do a commentary for me for the direct, director's cut of Fellowship of the Ring. 
okay. <laughs> it's a deal. Because you know I do hate better than you do. I, I will hate fuck that costume. <laughs> Boyd C. Adkins IV says, we've all talked and heard about shows or movies with characters that are horrible people but have redeeming qualities. My question is, is there a show or movie you love but the character is the worst thing since Dry Counties? Damn, somebody likes to drink. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't blame you. Um, yes, uh, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say I don't think there's anything I could say I totally love and hate, absolutely hate the main character. But I've said it repeatedly, I think the worst thing about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is Adam uh, uh, Sandberg. I think he overplays it way more than he should. He gets really irritating a lot of the time. He should be a lot more likable than he is. I don't think he's absolutely horrible, but he is the one nail sticking up that needs to be hammered down a bit on that show to make it a tighter, better show. Ah... I um I'm gonna go with Fight Club because if you actually sit back for five minutes, both versions of Tyler Durden are extraordinarily horrible people, just in very very different ways. Hmm. Even nice guy Tyler Durden is a dick consistently and could make different choices. Whereas you know I'm gonna blow everything up Tyler Durden is is a, is a fucking maniac. Yeah. But, you know, I love that film and I think it's a, it's a, a it's a movie about two horrible people. It's like it's like a a noir version of Step Brothers in some ways. Uh and I, I really love that film. Uh but both characters if you sit back and really think about them for 5 seconds dreadful. Oh yeah. Dreadful human beings. They're, they're supposed to be to Yeah, some degree, and that's the but, point. But that's, yeah. for me that's the thing. They are they are horrible. Uh but yeah, Have I, you I, seen I, the theory that the what's her name? The woman in there uh the third wheel uh uh, Tim Tim Burton's ex-wife. Oh, Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, that her character in there doesn't exist either. Have you read this theory? Yeah. It's an interesting theory. There's I think it's a, wrong. Yeah, I think it's wrong too, but there's so much evidence, I, I can't help but wonder if maybe it was kind of a little joke by Fincher in there. Little uh, uh, side point, by the way. Um, if you want to see a really great early Helena Bonham Carter performance that not many people have seen, uh, she did a wonderful period piece called Wings of the Dove. Mm. Uh, which is a literary adaptation. It is set in Venice um, during the Edwardian period. It's, it is great. Not many people have seen it. It kind of came and went in the 90s. Um, uh, and it's one of her best performances as a raw actress. It's just from a, a real, not trying to carry something with like a, a degree of visual flair or whatever, you know, that, you know, like a lot of the stuff she does, she's done with Burton or even kind of the weirder Outre stuff like um, uh, Fight Club. But she is great in that. I've always thought she's a wonderful But this is a moment where you can just sit back and go, my God, she's great. And she has a final sequence that is one of, uh, it's a real revelation for how good she really can be. Fair enough. Uh, and then go watch Kate Beckinsdale, a young Kate Beckinsdale in the movie Haunted with with uh, Aidan Quinn, I believe, which is a wonderful little gothic haunted house movie that she also gets completely naked in throughout the whole film. Admittedly, also, you do get to see uh, Helena Bonham Carter's ass in that. And, That's not so bad. Uh, it's like uh, two peaches in the moonlight. Suddenly we're the Mr. Skin podcast we, over uh, here. Uh, hey, I've, I've, I've met one of the Mr. Skin guys. Mm-hmm. Happy guy. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, last question from Justin Zarian, who's a big supporter of the site. So much, for, uh, thank, thank you so much for that, Justin. Even though it hasn't been well received in the past with things like the original Star Wars, do you feel there's a movie that could benefit from retroactively redoing the visual effects? I am going to cause fan outrage everywhere and say yes. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters mm-hmm. suffers from some of the worst ghosting 
on film with its CG effects of anything that is currently put out on Blu-ray that people, that everybody owns. It desperately needs at least a touch-up to fix some of those problems, and nobody, even on the nicest editions, nobody has, they've been too scared to mess with it at all. Yeah. And that's one, I'm not talking about a complete redoing, I'm talking about a touch-up throughout to fix the stuff where it's just so obviously guys standing in front of a green screen or what have you. And I will actually say, you know, much as people want to bitch about the the effects uh, stuff that was done on the Star Wars films, a lot of what was actually done was cleaning up uh, artifacts. Uh, You know, I remember watching the the original versions and going, and you can see through the metalwork on the snow speeders on Hoth. You know, stuff like that that they tweaked. Yeah. Like, it, you know, even That's if you thing want to I, complain about, you know, the Rontos and everything else, you know, you can't complain about the fact that those that those sequences, which are basically left intact, look a lot better that, because they actually were able to do something that technology had not allowed them to do. So I really hope that when they do inevitably, when Disney inevitably puts out, like, the... Uh, the original versions on Blu-ray to make Never gonna happen. billion dollars. They don't have the rights. They'll find a way, believe me. Disney can't get the rights to, to Spider-Man back off Sony. Fox will <laughs> never... Somebody, e- there's so much money to be made off that, it's going to happen eventually. It, the only way it's going to happen is if they can get hold of the original masters. Well, in fact, they're going to have to get hold of return negatives, um, which they're not going to i don't think they they just i don't think they're gonna be able to do that so like i think that's that's a a a pipe dream well my point point. is i would like to see a 1.3 version where you're right they keep the fixing and the little tweaks but they lose all the extra stuff they added to it that was totally unnecessary because yeah there was stuff that looks so great from being fixed there but yeah a lot of other stuff totally unnecessary Uh, i'm trying to think of something that i'd actually really like to see the effects. You know what oddly holds up really well, even compared to new films, is Jurassic Park. Yeah, holds up incredibly well. Like the the seed, all CG dinosaurs look phenomenal, yeah. even by today's standards. Yeah. Ooh, um, nothing like dead I'm air. <laughs> go with, no, because I'm going to go with uh, the terrible uh, remake of The Haunting. Oh, Jesus. Uh, which was which is terrible, but is made even worse by some truly rancid CG. Uh, and I'd quite like to see like if it's just that the CG was so bad that it dragged the rest of the film down to the pits of Hades from which it never recovers, or whether you like you actually fix shit CG that just never worked. That there's actually like a a polishable gem of a film in there. That's a movie that I love to watch in a total like ironic way myself yeah. i actually love watching the, the haunting remake because it's so terrible but it moves really fast and it's so outrageously dumb with the decisions that it makes that you can't help but laugh watching it oh also i'd, I'd quite like a, a a good digital cleanup on um the tentacle monsters in leviathan yeah uh, yeah, yeah, that would, that would just be nice because yeah. I, I like that film. Even uh, even silly. going back to the original Terminator and just fixing just a little bit the the animatronic Terminator. Oh, the the, the oh, it's, it's it, the stop motion. Yeah. yeah, he's a bit jerky in places. A little bit jerky. But I, I don't know. I mean, that'd be kind of like fixing uh, a Ray Harryhausen film. Yeah, well, yeah, it'd be like taking the the finger the fingerprints off the fur on King Kong. Yeah, Although no, you're it must right, be said, yeah. Mighty, by the time he, they did Mighty Joe Young, 
they had fixed a lot of those technological issues. And sure. Joe Young is actually, everybody raves about how great the work in uh, King Kong is, which it is. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to take that away at all. But Mighty Joe jo Young was an improvement. Mighty Joe Young is, is a, a quantum leap forward in the technology of doing fur in stop motion. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the show, or at least the penultimate end of the show we like to call Giveaways. <laughs> What we've got today is something that you guys talked about very, all too briefly, briefly on last week's show, which is the 10th anniversary collection of Mythbusters. And this is the 50 favorite episodes of the show as chosen by the Mythbusters themselves. Including uh, several who are no longer on the team. But, uh, you know. Yeah. And what, didn't one of them die just recently? Did they? I thought one of them died. What? I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Uh, but it says 100... Yeah, we better be careful about that, because I thought Bernadette Peters was dead, and like I got a lot of like, no, she's not. And I'm like, thank God for that. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, 125 myths tested need we say more is what it says on the back here a huge amount of like just classic i mean this is like the most fun show about putting needles in people's balloons that has ever been even conceived of it's classic stuff this is you know one of those like if you were gonna like have one thing representative of a show this good rather than the endless amount of seasons this is it this is the 50 best episodes, all collected together in a nice DVD set with, let's see how many discs. Uh, ten discs. This is a beast, folks. This is an absolute beast. Okay. And we are giving you one. Yep. Okay. Ooh, a uh, matron. Uh, okay. I think the challenge is on me to set the question. As okay, always. here is what you need to do. You need to follow us on Twitter, at one of us net. Yes. You need to use the hashtag... Mythbusters giveaway. Yes. Now, here is the question you need to answer. What is, some of the best episodes are the uh, the film myths ones, where they take a film and go, well, does this thing really work? Like the, the Jaws one, where they go, like, would the shark be able to bite through this? Would it be able to swim this speed? You know, I'm a, I, I love those ones. What film myth what ridiculous bit of nonsense in a film would you really, really like to be true and to work in the real world, even though you know it's complete bullshit, it's never going to happen? Like, you know, James Bond's car being waterproof so he can turn into something. It, it doesn't work. The it's answer is happen. lightsabers. Yeah. And I'm, I'm ruling that no, out right now. No, lightsabers, no. <laughs> That's it. Otherwise, we're going to get 80 people saying lightsabers. Lightsabers. So no lightsabers. No. Anyway, they can work. Um, no, they can't. Shut up. They cannot work, Richard. Shut up. They are imaginary. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> Even the yeah, science so of Star it... Wars, the forward says there's no such thing as lightsabers. Yet. There never will be. Yet. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Uh, follow us at one of us net. Um, hashtag it. Mythbusters giveaway. Just come up with the best crazy bit of physics or uh, something in a film that you really, really wish worked. Cool. All right. Well, we will be back again in another week with all new releases from Brian Salisbury and myself. And then after that, it's Richard and Brian. Yay. And then after that, you might be seeing some new people popping up in the lineup. Just saying. Uh. Digital noise is evolving. We're a weird and changing beast. Life finds a way. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I can't say it like Jeff Goldblum because I yeah. just can't do the impression. Well, I could say it like drunken Jeff Goldblum. Live finds away. You know, we should say bye to the audience. We should oh. say bye to Torgo because, you know... Oh yeah, bye Torgo! Bye Torgo! The, the suppuration seems to be really settling in now. <laughs> <laughs>